0: This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of Through the Years, the show where two men who enjoy drinking water review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I, as always, from the Pacific Northwest of Canada, am Trevor Dame, and from New York City is Matt Feuerstein. Matt, and, how are you?
1: And if you're one of our fans who enjoys drinking water, too, I want you to uh, I want you to tweet us at hashtag WaterWally. That's your name water now. WaterWally. That's your name.
0: That's All our water Wallies and Water wallets. I mean, let's just say it. It's the dog days of summer. No matter who's listening to this, you, the one, yeah, you know who you are. Like, you should probably be drinking more water right now. And it's this- good for your skin.
1: And this is a podcast about uh, old Ring of Honor, but really, it's a podcast by water lovers, for water lovers, for anyone, anywhere, who likes drinking water. Not swimming in water, not bathing in water, we're talking about water drinkers right here. That's what we do with it.
0: (laughs) Some episodes we might talk about Hydro, which was Jay Lethal's first name in Ring of Honor, but every episode, in our spirit, we're talking about hydration. That's right. So... Uh, I should quit we should I, sh- I should not go on a tangent no I, sh-
1: I should probably quit you need to no, keep doing this
0: you you were <laughs> this is going to probably be a pretty packed episode of things and one thing we have to get to of course always at the start is reminding you about the fine shows at the place to be podcast network and people who listen to the show regularly know uh, every episode I like to s- um spotlight not just a specific podcast but a specific episode of a podcast and i will not be doing it this time because i'm going to break with tradition and spotlight a podcast i haven't listened to yet but want to listen to because i think it's also a bit time sensitive which is for those who haven't been following the place to be nation website has been doing their 100 Greatest Wrestlers of WWF, WWE Project. There's been lots of discussion on the site. You should check it out if you haven't. As always, these like greatest wrestler projects are usually just amounts to a great excuse to re-watch matches, discuss them with people, things like that, discuss wrestlers. And Old Will, who has a lot of uh, really good podcasts of the years on um, Place to Be Nation, has, has a podcast... Kind of mini-series just for this project called For Your Consideration. And I have not listened to any episodes yet because I haven't had time. I've been pretty busy the last two weeks. But that's the podcast I'm going to recommend because I've been he has different guests on each episode, and each episode spotlights a different period of WWF history, like the Attitude Era, the Modern Era, the New Generation 90s kind of era. And it just, if you want to go back and listen to some, a very experienced podcast host taking some, what looks to be some very good co, I mean guests, not co-hosts, that's only Matt is the only co-host that matters on Place to Be Nation. Um, Thank you. You, you, should, you should listen. And uh, I, I know I'm going to be listening to them whenever I get the chance, but you could listen to them and beat me to the punch. And, and, I, and I
1: hope you all are enjoying some ice cold waters while you listen, because that sounds like a great combination.
0: You know, a tall, cool ice water, especially underrated. You know, mm-hmm. you're putting water in water. You're just exponentially making the water more watery. And other than that, uh, that's going to be the plug. It's a as always, you know, place to be. Nation continues on. We soon will start our fake feud with a. Any podcast above us in the ratings, we will crush you. Letters to Center Stage, I will, or from Center Stage, whatever, I am going to destroy you. Anyway, uh...
1: It's all on you, pal. <laughs> I, I don't have time for any destroying these days.
0: No, you, you have things called, like, a regular life. Hmm. But, what we both had time for is to watch in the recent week or two, is Glory by Honor, Ring of Honor's 8th show, Which, as is customary in 2002, took place at the Murphy Rec Center in Philadelphia. It took place on October 5th, 2002 and drew 425 fans, which is a fairly good crowd by 2002 standards, for a 14-match show that lasted four hours. And Dave notes in The Observer that Gabe Sapolsky told him after the show that they are going to limit future shows to 10 matches max and are going to make an effort to cut down on how long the shows last. Matt, I think they succeeded at the former looking at future cards. I don't think they succeeded at the latter.
1: No, um probably not. Actually definitely not. But I think they did get a little bit better at it. Like it wasn't it wasn't quite as um it wasn't uh like it basically every show was way too long at this point. And after this it was only some shows. I guess is what I'm trying to say. It wasn't every single time. I thought what was interesting about the attendance is that I also read that attendance, like the advance was really bad until they announced that they'd be doing stuff with CZW and then a lot of the CZW Philly faithful kind of jumped on board and uh, helped them boost their attendance up, because this was only two weeks after uh, Unscripted so, yeah,
0: and actually that oh sorry,
1: well I was just going to say like that's, which at, you know, maybe now when they in the era of like double shots or like running a pay-per-view then a taping in the same building it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but at the time when ROH was running once a month, coming back after two weeks seemed kind of excessive.
0: Yeah, it, it was something they were testing out to kind of to, to do these two Philly shows in a shorter period of time. And I remember they said it was an experiment. I remember they mentioned in the Observer a show or two ago in our notes. They mentioned that it, Ring of Honor was like experimenting with this, and I don't know if the experiment, like I don't, I don't. I think they they would run more shows in the next year, but I don't know if they would ever run two shows this quickly in the same market maybe as often as this exp- – I don't think they did it too often. I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, it would be a while anyway.
0: But that, that point you made about the ticket advance kind of dovetails into the next part, which is – This is a line I've been looking forward to saying for a long time. I love this line in The Observer. Ring of Honor and CCW, which were at war, have made peace because of mutual hatred for XPW. I always just love when, you know, it's the most touching story when two people can get together out of mutual hatred for somebody else. Anyway, XPW reportedly drew around the same size crowd at the ECW arena, at the same time as Glory by Honor, although they spent far more in advertising for a show headlined by Shane Douglas over Chris Candido, and also including Danny Doring, Psychosis, Super Crazy, Vic Grimes, Snuff, Juventud Guerrera, Chris Chetty, Sandman, Halloween, and Damien. So that was their competition, and going to the point you, you just made, Dave goes on to say, during the week, both Phoenix Championship Wrestling, which was Big Donnie B's group, and CZW said they would have representatives at the ROH show and kind of encouraged their fans to attend. Ring of Honor's feeling was that they were headed to drawing only 250 people until word got out about CZW being there, and as a result, a lot of CZW regulars came. Ring of Honor even announced that its November 9th show will start at 5 p.m., so fans can attend the CZW show later that night down the street. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting that... I don't know, I, I don't think it would just be the XPW running, I think it's probably more of what you said, which is that running two shows at the, in such a short order kind of drained their fans, maybe, because 250 would be by far the lowest crowd they would have drawn in their short history thus far. Although, so, Although,
1: I will say this, on paper, I think this had one of the weaker lineups. Like if you just look at like the match listing in terms, there's no title matches. A lot of like kind of goofy stipulations, um, which we'll get to. But I, I don't, I don't, know, it's, it's, I don't think it was that appealing of a lineup compared to maybe some of the earlier shows, which had like, you know, the round robin challenge or the world title four way or even the tag title tournament.
0: And it's funny because. Gabe, both on the Ring of Honor website because I use the web archive to go back and look at the website, and during the show, talks about how Glory by Honor is the biggest show Ring of Honor has done in their history. Like they were hyping it up as that, and like you said, there's there's no title matches. There's you know Samoa Joe and Low Key is a is a big match. Especially in 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 hindsight, but even at the time, Samoa Joe was not a, as big a name as he would become, and even in a year or two.
1: Yeah, it was his debut, and I think he, he was not even that known
0: to a lot of people at that point. It, it just it's it's hard to see. I mean, looking in back in hindsight, what how they thought this was the biggest card in Ring of Honor history, especially as you said, they did they had no title matches.
1: Yeah, I um. I would say other than in hype, it was, I mean, it, that, it's just total bullshit. This wasn't a big card. like it, And even in terms of storyline advancement, I don't think it was that big of a card. I just don't think in any way you could say this was a big card other than the legacy of that, uh, that low-key Joe match, which we'll get to.
0: Mm-hmm. So the other little thing that happened from the CZW pairing, well, one or two things will all happen during the show, but Rob Feinstein introduced John Zandig, the owner of CZW at the time, who came out with the Backseat Boys, Adam Flash, Wifebeater, and Nate Hatred. Feinstein Zandig hugged, and everyone shook hands. Dave says, no angle came of this, nor at this point is one planned. It's, it's weird because you see in the opening highlight video that starts the show, you see Rob and... And Zandig shake hands, and Zandig is dressed as what I can only describe as Trucker Bret Hart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you never see that referenced in the rest of the show. Like, it's weird, It's like a weird little clip where... It's
1: like one of those things in like where sometimes you see a movie trailer, and you're waiting for like certain lines in the movie, and you realize they've been edited out of the final cut of the movie.
0: Yeah, there are scenes just in the trailer, trailer-exclusive scenes that maybe weren't planned that way, but... I wonder how many fans would even know... I mean, I imagine if you watch Ring of Honor, you're probably fairly in tune with indie wrestling, but would you even really realize the significance... How many people would realize the significance of... It's this thing that never ends up on the show, that, oh, this one guy's shaking hands with another guy, and we don't see them for the show.
1: Yeah, I would expect, like... Considering, like, ROH had a lot of buzz at the time, That so maybe a lot of people were watching it, that were not watching other indies. Um... That uh, probably a good half of the people watching the DVDs did not know who, uh, who Zandig was.
0: Yeah, I mean, even if I uh, wasn't going back and doing this podcast and reading the observers at the time that were coming out at the time to catch up on the news, I don't know if I would realize the, the entire significance of, you know, oh, Zandig and Feinstein were having this kind of truce partnership during this time.
1: Yeah, and it was interesting because. During on commentary during the show, um, Chris Lovey, uh, Gabe Sapolsky's alter ego, um, makes a lot of notes about how they're going to be doing double headers. But this, but they're never going to do the CZW guys on an ROH show ever again. So I don't know. Like it was a weird sense that they gave it, almost like this was like a very begrudging thing, and they still didn't like CZW. But they were, I, I guess that that's kind of my takeaway. That like the way that they were so strongly saying they would never have CZW guys on the show after this. I thought it was just kind of strange the way they needed to telegraph that fact.
0: I thought that was really interesting, too, where normally when you have a partnership, you would at least want to tease that just to stir up excitement. But as Matt just said, Gabe really pushes hard. Like he's selling it as when we do these future double shot shows, you're going to get to see two great, very different wrestling companies, you know, in one night. It's very conveniently placed. But he also really emphasizes at least a couple times, you know, you're not going to see CZW C- wrestlers – probably after this backseat boys match in ring of honor again, like he's really making it clear like pushing the other way. Like you're not going to see these guys. We're only just doing the double shots. So yeah, really stressing it hard, which is like you said, feels a little weird, but I guess it's also truth in advertising. Although we would see more of the backseat boys in ring of honor, but the one big story that came up before the show, which I've been looking forward to and setting up for the last few episodes, is the big XPW hatred of Ring of Honor explodes here like the mega powers, <laughs> where, to recap for people that maybe missed a two or three shows ago, XPW kind of used some Ring of Honor credentials to try and get a promoter's license, Ring of Honor caught them and got angry, and then XPW vowed, they were going to war with Ring well, of Honor.
1: Well, let's back up for one second. Just let's talk a little bit about what XPW even really was, because um, it's sort of an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting promotion in a few different ways, right? Um, yeah. Well, so it was. Uh, it was owned by Rob Black, who was a um, known outside of wrestling for being a a porn producer. Was he a director also? And it was like,
0: um, yeah.
1: And it was like, uh, even even like. Not even the most mainstream porn, right? Like, it was, like, specific, like, fairly dark stuff.
0: He was considered scuzzy even by porn standards. Like, he was one of those guys, like you would hear in the news, like, that Max Hardcore, where when they went after porn producer, those were the kind of first guys that the police would go after. They were on the outside edge even of porn.
1: Yeah, and so Rob Black uh, brought that ethos to wrestling, and (laughs) he, um... He uh, so so XPW was based out of LA, and it really ran the West Coast for a few years. And it had a pretty famous incident at Heat Wave 2000, where they sort of crashed uh, the ECW pay-per-view, and there were some there was some actual violence between XPW and ECW guys uh, at that show. And now they're expanding uh, eastward into now that ECW is gone, and there's room because they they also produce like a like that sort of that violent. Uh, you know hardcore style they were like sort of like xpw but um even i think even more so like um kind of pushing the uh the hardcore element i don't know like if they had changed by now but that was that's the xpw i knew of and then you know a lot of the famous uh there, there was a the, the really famous um new jack vic grimes thing where new jack Through Vic Grimes basically and claimed as basically revenge for what happened in ECW. But through him basically what looked like could have been to his death off of the top of the, uh, I think it was the LA Sports Arena. Um, That was XBW. And now they're expanding eastward and, you know, the the more conventional wrestling people uh, of the uh, Philly indie scene basically treated XBW like they were Just complete outside intruders, uh not really part of the club, I guess.
0: And you know, going back to the start of uh the notes, like they said, CZW and Ring of Honor weren't exactly getting along, but they get got together from mutual hatred of XPW, which kind of tells you how they were even in a Philly scene where there was all the promotions kind of snipey at each other with three PW and CZW and Ring of Honor. XPW was the redheaded stepchild when they tried to expand there. And maybe there's a bit of threat too, because who knew how deep Rob Black's pockets would be. So maybe there was a little bit of fear there too, that, I mean, we were about to see that he would attempt to throw some money around. So, because this is the story that kind of builds to that, which is, let me just get to my note. Uh, During the week, there were attempts to get advertised Ring of Honor talent to work the XPW show. It, it, instead, for far more money, guys earning $100 for Ring of Honor were offered $500 by XPW. Boogaloo was the only guy who took the offer and worked under a mask on the XPW show. As the Ring of Honor show was going on, XPW reportedly called Steve Carino and offered him $1,000 just to show up and do a surprise run-in to lay out Shaden Douglas. So that's a lot of money you know, for, for those standards, Giving offering guys five times the money.
1: I have to say, it was, seems like it was probably a short-sighted decision by Boogaloo.
0: Y- yeah, I mean, he never worked in Ring of Honor again, and he was the only guy which kind of made him look bad. Maybe it would have looked a bit better if he had a few guys come along with him. It would still be a scummy move, but... I don't know if he ever would have become much in Ring of Honor, but certainly you look at where Ring of Honor went, you look at where XPW went, you look where Boogaloo went, and it's hard to justify if he made an extra $400 that night it being a great decision.
1: Yeah, I mean, indie guys, like, you probably need the money, but um, you know, uh, if it's, I mean, Natural Born Sinners were getting a push, right, and they clearly wanted to push Homicide, so... There's a decent chance, I think, that if he stuck around in ROH, he would have had a, at least a decent career there, if not, a, if not having gone on to like TNA or WWE or whatever.
0: And the interesting thing to me also is they say he wore a mask. Like I wonder, I'm wondering, did he do that because he thought he could get away with it? Like well, that that's ring not of well, water-
1: no, well, I think they would know whether he was in a mask or not, whether he was actually
0: at their show, right? Yeah, that's my point. Like, th- They would notice that Boogaloo is the one guy that didn't show up and no-showed, and w- when Ring of Honor knows for a fact that all during the week leading up to the show, guys were getting offers to skip Ring of Honor to go to XPW.
1: So I'm a little confused. What wh- What had happened at the previous show when the Natural Born Sinners weren't there, if this is when Boogaloo uh,
0: joined XPW?
1: why weren't I'm- Why was that match canceled... In September, did did the Observer ever report that?
0: The the Observer never said anything about that. I don't know if they were even booked because, even though in storyline they wrote it out as the Carnage crew attacked the Natural Born centers backstage, we never even see that happening. Like if you watch that entire show, you don't see Homicide, you don't see Boogaloo. So it's possible they just never even booked them. If they knew that in advance, they could advertise the match, but not have to pay two guys to come that maybe, would be weird
1: maybe i'm naive but i feel like in that like that roh wouldn't have done that like like that they were a little they were trying to be a little bit more above board than just blatantly false advertising people they knew wouldn't be there
0: it, it's weird it, it's just i i don't know i that's another thing i just don't know how what happened with that it's Because people have even said, well, didn't the Boogaloo thing happen on the earlier show? But no, reading The Observer at the time, this was the show where Boogaloo was booked and he was the one guy who took the offer to jump. Yeah. So I'm going to call out pro wrestling only message board poster and listener Lainey dug up an old ROH press release that someone had saved on the SoCal wrestling message board. And this is a pretty interesting little piece of history where this is Ring of Honor putting out a release before Glory by Honor addressing this XPW thing. and it's, There's a couple interesting tidbits here and you get to hear how they, how they talk about it. So the headline of their press release is XPW Attempts Talent Raid on Ring of Honor. Extreme Pro Wrestling attempted a talent raid on the Ring of Honor roster over the last several weeks in hopes of running a Ring of Honor invasion angle on its upcoming event. XPW Representative Slash has placed, has placed several calls in addition to having face-to-face meetings with Mafia and Monster Mac of the Hit Squad, Homicide and Boogaloo of the Natural Born Sinners, and Izzy, also known as Insane Dragon. XPW offered these individuals some or all of the following, five times what Ring of Honor pays them, new ring outfits and gimmicks, paid-for airfare, hotel... Rental car for proposed shows in Chicago, Louisiana, Pittsburgh, and Los Angeles. When these offers were refused, XBW upped the ante to, quote, anything it takes, unquote, to sign these individuals. Homicide and Mafia have given their word that they are with Ring of Honor and will only be performing at the Murphy Recreation Center in South Philly this Saturday night. Ring of Honor officials, who became aware of this talent rate on October 1st, have yet to talk with Izzy, Monster Mac, and Boogaloo. In the past, XPW has tried to write other talent from the Ring of Honor roster, including Jay and Mark Briscoe, Jose Maximo, and Joel Maximo, as well as the Amazing Red. In every case, these individual individuals have committed to Ring of Honor. This Saturday night, Ring of Honor will present its biggest show to date, entitled Glory by Honor. It lists the lineup, and then Gabe goes on to write, I assume it's Gabe. All of these individuals have willingly and knowingly allowed Ring of Honor to advertise and promote their services for the Saturday's event. If any of these individuals wish to break their agreement, they can go because Ring of Honor does not wish to employ them. Eddie Guerrero proved to be a man of honor by keeping his uh, April 27th night of appreciation date despite being WWE Intercontinental champion. A professional based on a promotion based on honor can only expect the same from the current roster. Ring of Honor will not employ any individual that breaks their promise to the paying customer. Ring of Honor prides itself on total honesty and delivering what its fan base pays for. We realize you work hard for your money, and we consider it an honor that a wrestling fan would choose to spend it and their evening at a Ring of Honor event. In return, we promise to work as hard as possible to deliver the best show we can. Ring of Honor is based on honor, respect, and professionalism in and out of the ring, Blah blah blah. Individual. Any individual who allows his or her name to be advertised only to screw the fans that pay to see them and the company that employs and promotes them does not uphold these qualities. Simply, they are not Ring of Honor material, and we owe it to our fan base not to employ these individuals. If you are the type to betray your fans by no showing, Ring of Honor does not want you. It is the least we owe our paying customers. If anyone accepts our offer, We will keep you informed in the backstage area of rfvideo.com. Ring of Honor is flattered by XPW's high regard of our talent roster and wishes them, as well as all other Philly area promotions, the best of luck.
1: In other words, TLDR. (laughs) Yeah.
0: In other words, fuck you, XPW, you know, and fuck you, anyone that leaves. It's interesting that this came out before the show. That, um you know, they're almost putting pressure on the wrestlers by not just saying, hey, is making offers to our wrestlers, they're actually saying, here's the wrestlers that they've gone out and talked to -to face-to-face, here's the ones we've gotten to agree to stay, here's the ones we haven't talked to yet, and here's us talking about what kind of shits they would be if they no-showed. So they were aware that Boogaloo could no-show before the show.
1: Well, yeah, but not just him.
0: Yeah, um, Izzy, Boogaloo... Monster Mac, so
1: yeah, I mean, the one, the one thing that see that XPW promised that I didn't really see as like a appealing thing was that they were going to give him new gimmicks and outfits, and I imagine a lot of those guys, like you know, except maybe Izzy, because you know uh, that wasn't the gimmick he came in with. I imagine a lot of those guys liked doing what they were doing, like you know, so I I don't see why that would be like part of a a um I guess a um a, a sell job. To come to uh, to come to XPW,
0: it, it, and it also it just doesn't seem like good like it seems like a move designed to hurt Ring of Honor more than help XPW. Throwing or, help, Carino, or help
1: any of the guys that they're actually bringing over.
0: Yeah, like throwing Carino a thousand dollar offer to do a run in, offering guys five times their salary, saying we're going to give you this airfare for shows all over the country well it's
1: almost like a like a cute version uh not cute like a cute um version of what the wwf did in the in the 80s i think seems like they were taking them from their playbook for that because weren't there rumors like that they wanted harley race to show up at wrestlemania one or Oh no, no it was the opposite it was how harley race was supposed to hurt somebody who showed up at wrestlemania one something like that so some sort of like so it's like take out Hulk Hogan or something like that. Like at WrestleMania 1, that's what it was. Um, but you know, all sorts of weird stuff where people were paying people lots of money to do weird things to hurt the other promotions. So maybe uh, maybe uh, Rob Black was a student of wrestling history.
0: <laughs> or maybe he was also just a porn Mogul that had more money than he knew what to do with before the internet kind of destroyed the porn industry. And he just, like. I think one of the earlier observers talked about how you know Rob Black's basically a guy who just liked trolling people. He was one of the original trolls of his era. He was a man before his time. He just liked fucking with people and doing hoaxes. And I think he liked getting into fights. And another, this guy, was another fight. guy,
1: another guy that should have just been president instead.
0: <laughs> We're finding so many good candidates as yeah, we go through the I years. Know. But now uh, I'm just going to keep going. We can finally get to the show proper glory by honor and we kick off with our old friend the techno music highlight video we're back to the techno we get the same moves of things we're going to see later in the show it's classic 2002 indie cheese where they're overusing the negative film effect we see the zandig feinstein handshake not much more to this and then we start the show proper we go right to a match after the highlight video we get the tag team scramble match of Divine Storm, of Chris Divine and Quiet Storm, with Trinity, taking on Special K of Dixie and Izzy, with Elax accompanying them, taking on the SAT of Joel and Jose Maximo, taking on Homicide all by himself, because yes, Boogaloo no-showed, and surprise, surprise, Homicide wins all by himself in 1352, when he makes Dixie submit to an STF. Matt, what do you think about this as the scramble train keeps rolling on show by show?
1: Um. Well, I I, enjoy, I enjoyed it to some degree. Um, it's kind of a mess. Uh, it should be noted, I'm pretty sure this is the first time they ever actually called it a scramble match. Am I... Like, the first they, ever official one.
0: This, the... I think there might have been one show, one or two before this. They might have had one earlier, I'm not sure, but...
1: I don't remember hearing that name, because the other one I could think of maybe would be the one at Honor Invades um, Boston.
0: Boston, yeah. And I
1: don't think that was a scramble, because I think the scrambles are technically when you have multiple teams, like a, like this four-corner thing. Um, like, was it, or at least in the early scramble days? But then, actually, now that you mention it, no, because they, they had an eight-man tag then at the couple shows later. I don't know. I'm pretty sure, though. Um, but... Um, they mentioned that Boogaloo was taken out by the Carnage crew, so they did stick with that with that um, uh, with that angle. Um, I, uh, I I th- I think. Um, well, first of all, I want to mention before I talk about the match too much, uh, the commentary team. Right.
0: Yes, this is Jeff Gorman's debut. Jeff Gorman is debut. Um, Doug Gentry will come back as Ray Morrow, but for some reason for a few shows he's not there. Jeff Gorman takes over by Chris Lovey's side who is Gabe Sapolsky. And I would say Jeff Gorman does a serviceable average job. I don't think he adds much. I don't think he takes away much.
1: I disagree with you so much on this. I think oh. Jeff, I think Jeff Gorman mm, might be like at least in the DVD post-produced commentary era like the second or third best commentator they ever had.
0: Wow! Really?
1: At least in terms of like play-by-play, like CM Punk was like, I'm not counting him in there, even though he was great. Yeah, I thought he was like he wasn't obnoxious. He didn't he didn't have like any weird ticks that I noticed. He just called the matches. The best you ever were gonna get from ROH commentators in that post-produced era was you could ignore them. They were they would call the matches, so you knew what was going on. They'd give a little background. That was the best you were ever gonna get. At no point did except maybe sometimes with cm punk did roh commentary really enhance the matches at any point up until maybe like 2010 right like would you agree with that
0: i I would agree i I did like lenny leonard on colored commentary with uh dave prazak but even their commentary it it wasn't something where you would ever really notice like man the commentary is great right I i think you put you put like the perfect phrasing, where at best it just didn't detract, you know.
1: Yeah. So, praise Zach Leonard Gorman. I would say from for that era, for the Sapolsky era, I'd say like they, they were the they were the best like of the straight play by play guys because they, they weren't obnoxious. Gorman just did his job, and I was so impressed by that because it was the first time he ever had a commentator do that and actually know what he was doing. So I actually strongly like Jeff Gorman. And I'm surprised that they didn't keep him for longer.
0: And it's funny because Gabe even remarks during the match, like you almost feel bad for Gorman when he goes, so you know, this being your first match is going to be a trial by fire because, you know, the very first thing you have to call is a crazy scramble match with guys flying all over the place and so many moves and different people in the match. And for those who want to learn more about Jeff Gorman, there's not a... I mean, he's on Twitter. I for, I don't have his Twitter name, but I'm sure you can quickly figure it out yourself. But there's not a ton I could find in my brief research of Jeff Gorman, except he did write a book called This Side of the Mic, which is uh, it's under 100 pages. It's on Amazon, and this book is the bane of my existence because every week I stare at the page and almost buy it and then say, no, Trevor, you're not buying a 95-page book for like eight pages on Ring of Honor. You're not doing it. Stop. And I talk myself out of it. And then the next week I'm back on Amazon looking at it again going, no, just don't buy it, don't buy it. But for those who do want to succeed where I failed or failed where I'm succeeding, This Side of the Mic by Jeff Gorman is available on Amazon.com.
1: I think you're making the right decision, man. Just <laughs> just saying. Um, so, yeah, so that's my oddly strong opinion on Jeff Gorman. I'm sorry for uh, – like, but like, like things that he didn't do that Lovey did, like – where Lovey love would say something like when they were doing dives or, or when someone teased the dive, I got cut off and he goes, oh, it's a little too early for the high spots.
0: Um, oh yeah. You know
1: where he's just, he's just like a little bit, a little bit too smarky for his own good on commentary, but there's a few times where he does that. And so there's some other things that he does that are, that is annoying too. But, um, I thought the match, I guess what I would say was the match was bad, but also very entertaining at the same time. Um, <laughs> And I think usually entertaining wins out over uh, bad. Um, so I guess I didn't mind it. I guess it was fine. Uh, the crowd loved Homicide even before he had his big singles push, which I guess sort of started on this show. Um, but, you know, you could see, you know, that he was much, you know, he was much more dynamic, had more charisma than all the other guys in the match. So that, that's one thing that stood out.
0: I thought this was, as far as scramble matches go, above average. It was not close to the best scramble I've ever seen, but I would say this is a good example of a scramble match. If I, if aliens came down and they said, show us an example of what a scramble match is after I would just be confused about that. I might show them this match because it has so many of the tropes of these kind of matches. Yeah. There's the, oh, sorry, go on.
1: Oh, that tower suplex powerbomb with all seven guys. That's like, taking that trope to a new level. I don't think I ever... Well, maybe probably, they probably probably did do it again. But it was so ridiculous.
0: Yeah, and in fact, it, that is the sp- it, that spot was scary to me because they do the Tower of Doom spot where everyone's getting suplexed or something at the same time. And it seems to just kind of explode. Like, people land hard on other people. They don't seem to land properly. And even Gabe makes some comment about it being a, looking like a car wreck. Like, it actually looked kind of scary. It, it looked like they were going for a bunch of suplexes and then everyone just kind of lost their grip on everybody else. Yeah. But it was one of those tropes, you know, so many of the tropes of these matches were in there the dive train, the tower of doom spot, a big, the big, crazy, everyone's getting everyone in the submission chain. I mean, it, it's a good kind of example of what, of what p- these matches would generally give you, but it's, it's the usual match where there's some things that are sloppy. There's some things that look pretty good. There's big high spots. There's the things we just mentioned. I thought Izzy and Dixie continue to look pretty good, and they seem to take some of the biggest risks. Izzy took a, a clothesline while he was standing on the top rope, and someone else was staying on the top rope, which I thought looked pretty cool. Uh, Dixie takes a top rope dragon superplex, but he rotates in the safest way to land right on his stomach, but I thought it was still pretty impressive. And, you know, there's there's also the, the messy spots. Chris Devine, ever since that low-key match, has really looked rough. He, he does an arm drag here, and um, Homicide ends up, like, landing on Chris Devine from the arm drag. I, I don't know who screwed that up, but it's weird. Like, they couldn't get distance on arm drag. But it, it was also kind of funny to see the match end with an STF after all these crazy spots. It's the guy that had no partner winning with a submission. I thought that was kind of funny.
1: I thought, but, I thought that was a cool choice,
0: actually. It was certainly different and memorable. Like I remember, I don't have to look at notes to remember that finish. So, I think any time in a match like these scramble matches, you remember things. Like that's an automatic win to me. That yeah. j- just that it's not a blur to me. That something sticks out. So yeah, you know, good solid, not incredible scramble match. Bad and good, incredibly bad. But um, after that, post match. The Backseat Boys run in through the crowd and get in the ring. And Trent gets on the mic and mentions that Ring of Honor and CZW are working together now. And he actually gets a few boos. So it's interesting that even this early in Ring of Honor's history, there were some fans that were definitely not CZW fans. They, they already had kind of a bit of a divide among some of the faithful.
1: I think it helped that they really did have two different styles of wrestling that they promoted.
0: Definitely. And, you know, they, they were very... They were leaning hard into each of those styles, you know. Yeah. I think XPW sometimes chafed that p- sometimes that people thought they were only hardcore, but I think other times they were very proud. You know, that was a big selling point. Czczw, C- the- you mean? I mean CZW, CZW. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Ring of Honor, of course, was trying to emphasize that they were a bit of everything, but they were really proud of the mm-hmm. more technical wrestling matches. So, Trent Acid. Decides to challenge Homicide, even though he's just had a tag match. And Homicide responds that he'll tag right now with anybody in the Ring of Honor locker room. And out comes Steve Carino. So Steve Carino makes his Ring of Honor debut, finally, eight shows in, for an unadvertised mystery partner match, which was kind of interesting.
1: At least it wasn't Elax who came out.
0: (laughs) And we get the Backseat Boys taking on Homicide and Steve Carino. And the Backseat Boys... Backseat boys, not backside. When in six minutes forty-five seconds, when Kashmir pinned Homicide, after Kashmir and Trent Acid hit their T gimmick finisher on um, Homicide, which was kind of like a double-team crucifix bomb, where they each grab one arm. Um, this match I thought was not as good as the scramble. I thought it was kind of, I mean, obviously it wasn't the same kind of match, but I thought it was similar in the sense that it was a lot of just a lot of spots four guys running around no tags and we had just seen so much longer with more guys so this felt a little bit like a inferior version of that to me Gabe and Gorman during the match wonder if this match is Ring of Honor rules or CZW rules and we never appear to get an answer Gabe they say, later they
1: say it's a mix of ROH and CZW rules which annoys me cuz that that just means like they didn't they didn't think it through and they shouldn't have even brought it up
0: yeah, Gabe eventually just says, oh, I guess it's a mix. And basically what it amounts to is, is this match was a tornado tag where a chair was briefly allowed to come into play on the outside. So, I mean, whatever rules that is, it just it wasn't made clear. I don't know who that fits, but not a long match, not a ton to it. And the, but the big point is the end where we get a couple of your standard new partner miscommunication spots where Carino shoves, or not not just miscommunication, because the first one is Carino shoves Homicide off of a pin in an attempt to make the cover for himself and get the glory. Homicide, a short time later, accidentally hits Carino. Carino responds, and then Carino later responds by hitting Homicide as he was about to hit the cop killer on Kashmir, and then walks out on him, leaving him to lose to the T gimmick. And Gabe immediately just starts selling about what a big, selfish asshole Carino is, even though this felt more just kind of like your standard miscommunication moment, rather than the most dastardly thing of all time. And this was the start of the semi-legendary Carino homicide feud, you know, one of the more fondly remembered, I would say, Ring of Honor feuds of the first few years.
1: Yeah, it's it was, so it's actually a big deal angle. Um... I uh, I thought this I could sort of considered this and the scramble as one big long homicide centric segment, and I thought the whole thing was a pretty entertaining mess, if that makes sense. You know, the back the backseat boys. I don't they never really had a great match in ROH, but I thought as like special guest stars in a six minute match, they were pretty entertaining doing you know their kind of indie style stuff. Um, I um I thought uh, you know because the commentary always sticks out to me. Lovey kept making fun of CZW commentary and CZW using too many Yakuza kicks, and he, he, oh, yeah. he was he was mocking. I don't remember what the name of the CZW commentator is, but just the way he would say Yakuza kick, <laughs> and I couldn't tell if it was loving mockery or if just it was more like Gabe sour grapes about CZW. It's kind of hard to tell like what what his feelings were at the time about CZW, honestly, um, based on this. But he was mocking the Yakuza kick use, which is funny because ROH in the next year or so would also employ lots of Yakuza kicks probably because they were featuring a lot of uh, the, the backseat boys and Homicide um but um but yeah I'd say as far as you know it was a mess the rules didn't make any sense but Homicide continued to look good he continued to be over people were excited for Carino wrestling um and the angle was good you know, the, the, you know and it led to bigger things than you probably would have expected uh when you first saw the show in 2002.
0: And it's interesting that... you know, would this even have happened if Boogaloo didn't show up, you know? Would would Homicide have gotten this Steve Carino feud right away like this? It, it, I mean, a, as you kind of framed it, I didn't really think of it that way. This whole opening two matches are basically one kind of homicide-centric kind of story.
1: Introduction to Homicide being a major player... In ROH, basically.
0: Mm -hmm. And it all comes from Boogaloo not showing up. Something
1: else happens on the next show, I don't want to spoil too much, where somebody no-showing leads to Homicide getting kind of a bigger break.
0: Homicide was almost like Ring of Honor's version of, I forget the guy's names, but there was, you know, in the Johnny Carson days of The Tonight Show, and I'm sure in other late-night shows, there would always be that standby guest where if someone got sick, they would have one guy who has just lived in the city, who was a good guest, who would always be willing to come on on short notice. Homicide almost feels like he's getting that kind of benefit. Where any any time someone no shows, it seems to benefit Homicide somehow.
1: Yeah, it's a good point actually. Um, you know, because you'd think it would hurt him a lot, being that it was his tag team partner that keeps or that no showed. But actually, no.
0: Yeah. So that's that. That's the start of the Homicide Credo feud which we'll get into a lot through the years always get a chance to use the podcast name and then next we have the christopher street connection it's a six-man mixed tag so it's this time it's actually alice in danger wrestling with buffy and mace escorted to the ring by japanese pool boy and they take on and defeat alexis Lorie, christian york and joey matthews in four minutes 45 seconds when Danger pinned Lorie after she took the gay basher from the double team finish from the Christopher Street connection. And this was not good. And it's weird. It made me, I, I haven't been a huge fan of York and Matthews in Ring of Honor or in general. This made me feel bad for them because they were on defense for most of the short match. And you could tell watching it, the whole ma- The focus of the whole match was on Alexis Lorie. Like they were just kind of her props almost. The, the finish was all built around the fact that Allison Danger pins Lurie and it was the, she just tagged in. Danger never got involved into the match till the very end just to steal the pin and Lurie being all full of fire and pissed at the, and the Christopher Street connection and York and Matthews were just there to fill out the body of the match it felt like and I, I, I like I always have to say this I like some of the Christopher Street Connection gimmick out of the ring I think they're charismatic I think even if we don't like some of the t- way they've been treated we both agree they have some real charisma and entertainment value to them especially Buffy but, especially Buffy but this match was kind of the worst of them it was all the easy the easy stereotypical tropes of just you know all of their offense felt like it was either based on cheap gay comedy spots or japanese pool boy interfering and it just was a nothing match that not enjoyable not the best use of these guys i thought
1: yeah i mean i agree with that yeah nothing match um very basic offense by the Christopher street connection and the Chris street connection pretty much had offense the whole time there is one thing that i noticed about this that bugged me um more so even more than just the, the obvious and that is so the angle here was that alice in danger was basically afraid to get into the ring to take on alexis larie right like she eventually attacks her from behind by the end right like that's sort of the angle right larie is there she wants a little a piece of of danger but she never gets it really right until the end
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: or, or she never gets it at all um but the thing is, they during the match I noticed this. They never showed Alice in Danger on the apron. Like the the camera shot didn't have her in the frame. So you so to the point where I was at a certain point I was like, wait, is this a mixed tag? Until Laurie actually got in, I was like, is this a mixed tag or is this just the tag team match with them in the corner? And you have to show her on the apron to show her hiding and being a heel and reacting for, to care about the angle at all. So until until Lurie came in and then Danger got her from behind, I had. Basically, uh, you know, that angle was sort of out of sight, out of mind for a couple of minutes. And that's sort of a problem when it's the whole focus of the match.
0: Exactly. It's not until the very end where Gabe stresses, oh, you know, hey, Alice in Danger never hit a move in the match and she's getting the pin. This is disgusting. You have, and to have until that- sh-
1: you have to have some shots of her, like, on the apron, taunting or hiding or, you know, something.
0: Or at least spend time on commentary selling the story. Since this is pr- post-recorded commentary after the show was done, you know the story of the match. One of the commentators is the Booker. You know where this is going. You you should be able to sell it, even if you don't. Even if you don't have the right camera shots, but they didn't. Not that it's a, a, an amazing story. I still, again, felt bad for the Chris for uh, York and Matthews. I thought back to when um, C W Anderson kind of had a falling out with Ring of Honor after working that one show, and they said he was going to, his. the plans were for him to work a feud with York and Matthews, and I don't know if that would have been, any, set the world on fire in any way, but it has to have been better than what they ended up getting instead, which is this.
1: Well, bigger and better things are on the way for Joey Matthews, <laughs> sort of, kind of, um Maybe. Um, prob- probably, comparati- comparatively speaking, right. It, be, it has to be better than this. Um, but they do get to lay out the Japanese pool boy after the match. To no reaction whatsoever.
0: <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny, but it is. The cra- but
1: the crowd is already burnt out after two matches.
0: All the excitement. Of, yeah. Well, there was a lot of spots, and this was, I guess, the buffer match. I guess. I guess. I don't. I don't. I, I don't know if the gate put that much thought into it, but. I don't know where the next match happened on the card, but this is the place I put to talk about it, which was the Insane Clown Posse worked a Ring of Honor show. This, so this is
1: So that this is the order that it happened in on the actual taping?
0: I don't know. I decided to stick it in here. I couldn't figure out where the order was, but I knew we should at least give it a slight acknowledgement. So I thought this is probably as good as time as any. Um, it, insane Clown Posse apparently showed up the afternoon of the show asked Ring of Honor if they could work, and they came in and did a 49-second squash match, squashing the outcast killers of Diablo Santiago and Oman Tortuga. Would that have been
1: their ROH debut?
0: Yes, it would have, actually. I they They had
1: a fairly lengthy career in ROH, despite doing almost nothing of note. (laughs)
0: And this is the epitome of nothing of note because it did not make the DVD. You can see it on YouTube for free. Some ICP fan has uploaded it. If you search for ICP and Ring of Honor, you'll find that. Um, It did end up making a DVD called ROH Uncensored, which ROH, uh, Ring of Honor put out much later which was a very weird DVD where it was a collection of pre-show and after-noon show matches that they knew they couldn't sell otherwise, along with three or four infamous segments of fans shitting on things or things going wrong. So, that
1: you're, so you're telling me those pre-show matches weren't just too hot for uh, the regular DVD, too exciting, too, too rude and with attitude?
0: I mean, you have to kind of... Seal the Vordell Walker around a protective barrier of Jeff Hardy and Conan getting booed by petulant fans. Otherwise, it'll just melt the plastic of the DVD. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah. So if I mean, if you want a real weird rarity, you should look on eBay for Ring of Honor Uncensored. I don't even own this because it, it, it yeah, it, it does have the Jeff Hardy segment. It does have the IC, ICP segment. It has Conan getting shit on in a match, and it has, I believe, the. Teddy Hart moonsaulted off of the scramble cage after the match spot that pissed all everyone off in Ring of Honor and basically got him blacklisted from the company. So those were kind of the four selling points of the DVD, and then they fill it out with never-before-seen afternoon show matches. But for the match itself, there's not much to it. It's a... Uh, Sub one-minute squash match. A few of the fans seem excited to see ICP as a surprise, but as soon as they get in the ring, they chant, I see shit. They, you know, I I wouldn't say every fan in the crowd hated them, but a lot didn't seem to enjoy it, especially maybe once they realized they were going to see a match from them. Uh, There's not much to this. There's not much to say. It's just, it is surreal a little bit to see ICP in Ring of Honor.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the crowd should have I mean, I don't like it when crowds don't give anyone a chance, you know. And ICP obviously are ICP, so I get it a little bit. But um, you know, let them let them have a shitty match before you boo them. Then then it feels a little more justified because you knew they were going to do it anyway, right? Um, but I will say I sort of understand because the ICP does push uh, their audience to drink um, to drink sodas instead of delicious ice cold water.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no. Fago tonic, I believe. Yeah. Well, there might be, actually. I don't know. We don't get Fago here. but I
1: don't think we get it here, either. So
0: <laughs> We live in the civilized part of North America. Uh-huh. But, yes, yeah, do you have anything else to say about ICP? There really isn't much. I mean, it seems like something we should talk about, but yet, there really isn't much to say, I don't think.
1: I would say I don't see shit. <laughs> I, I to s- say. I see two sad boys.
0: Oh, you can see it even through the makeup. Mm -hmm. But next we get
1: literally the tears of a clown.
0: (laughs) Finally, the unreleased, uh, the day the the clown cried. Mm -hmm. Finally, we can see that just with the ICP reacting, reenacting it. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, we get something next that I think I would, I preferred the ICP segment to, which is James Maritano cutting a backstage promo that is just a longer version of the same promo he's been cutting show after show after show, which is the FBI was great, but it ran its course. Tony Mameluke should get serious like I've been doing. My whole career has been doing better since I got serious. I'll note at this point. James Maritano's career at Ring of Honor was two wins and four losses. So if that's better than winning the ECW Tag Titles twice, I I doubt it. And the cherry on top, he got
1: very specific with the timeline. We got we won (laughs) this in '97, and we won it again in 2000, and we took it even higher. Very specific.
0: Yeah, he basically lays out the entire history of the FBI, at least with him in it. And the kind of ironic thing is, I mean, it's not that this is anyone's fault, but The whole story is about James Maritato saying, you know, we got to get away from the FBI gimmick. And a few months later, James Maritato would be back in WWE doing the FBI gimmick as Nunzio.
1: Now, I guess we can get to it later, but they did a promo at the end of this show that seemed to strongly indicate that he was going to WWE. But it was never actually mentioned on the commentary, and they treated the match like it was going to be an angle going forward. But then the promo at the end... Made it seem like it was over and he was leaving. So I'm very confused by what they knew and didn't know about Maritato's future at this point.
0: Yeah, I didn't know what, I don't know what was known at this time about his career, like where he was going. But I agree, the, the pro we'll get to at near the end of the show has a very passing the torch kind of I'm out of here feel from Maritato. Like, hey, you know, you got to be the shooter now instead of me. So. Yeah, it, 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 whether or not that Maritato knew he was going to WWE at this point, this is them writing him out of the, of the company either way. Right. So we get next. The winner gets the rights to the FBI gimmick, except not really match. That's Tony Mameluke defeating James Maritato in eight minutes, 30 seconds with submission via submission with a guillotine choke. Uh, Matt. Did you did this live up to the storied storied feud they had built up in Ring of Honor?
1: Well, I genuinely did expect a better match than this because that little short thing that they did at uh, Unscripted had a lot of intensity to it. Mm-hmm. So I thought a longer version of that could have been cool, but they just like did the early mat wrestling stuff, which they which they're I think they're pretty good at. I, I thought it was fine. Um, Maritato kept his shirt on for a lot of the match, maybe even all of it. <laughs> Um, which I thought was interesting, um, but then they sort of just kind of did. They sort of did some slow, um, like s- slow of slow versions of their high spots. It was very short. I would say it never got out of first gear. Um, at a certain point, Taito botched the kiss of death, and um, kind of Sapolsky or Lovey covered for it. I never know if I, if I should use his stage name or not.
0: Um, <laughs> I use Gabe just because I think it's easier, but no, uh, I feel like we should just w- once in a while remind people that he was using the name Chris Lovey at this point. But, yeah. I mean, it's it's easier for me just to keep track of it as Gabe, especially because he's going to change his name down the line to a different fake name.
1: Yeah, it makes sense.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: So Maritato um, botches, botches Kiss to Death, but Lovey says that Mama Luke blocked it intentionally. Yeah. They, they did. The, the, so the the chancery came actually in a cool spot because. Uh, Mamaluke hit a superplex and then went right into it for the tap out. But I just thought like it was just it was just very sudden considering how long they've been building up to it. I I was very surprised they didn't put more into it and they didn't give it more time. Uh, but I th- I thought it wasn't it wasn't very good not because they did anything too anything too bad but because it was just like it was like the first 8 minutes of a 20 minute match.
0: And then it ended. I co- I completely agree. This was disappointing. It was wasn't horrible But I would say average to a little below average and just very disappointing. Like, I mean, you said most of the things I was thinking where they had a nice three or four minute brawl on the last show that was intense and felt like a a feud ending match should be. And here they just take it to the mat, which for the first half, which makes sense because they're both known as being mat technicians. But it's not really feeling like a big feud ending vicious match. And then when they go to the last four missing more of a traditional wrestling match with bigger spots, they're surprisingly kind of rough and don't feel like they have a ton of chemistry for two guys that have spent so long teaming together. As you mentioned, the big spot of the match is Maritato does the kiss of death, which is, for those who don't know, basically the unprettier. And... Tony takes it, Mama Luke takes it completely wrong. He, he lands on his knees instead of just taking a, a flat bump right on his face. And Gabe tries so hard to sell as this amazing counter. Like, oh, you know, he took it on his knees to absorb the impact. Except they immediately go and treat it with a big near fall. Like, it's clear it wasn't meant to be sold as oh, you know, Mama Luke completely took the impact because he's so smart and knows Maritano so well. And just not a good match and the i would say the fans even during this match their rain their reactions ranged from what i would call respectfully bored to near silent uh-huh. at different moments of the match and also let's say this no one was buying these shows for the james maritato tony mamaluke match or a feud but what an unsatisfying win way to finish it for anyone that if on the on, on the off chance that someone was, what a disappointing way. Mama Luke was portrayed as the heel, and you know Maritana was selling him as stuck in the past and how his career had gotten so much better since he gave up the FBI gimmick, and then Mama Luke wins clean in eight and a half minutes, and just wins the match. You in know, a, in, that, a ma-
1: in a match that felt like they, it would have been the same if they just thrown it out there cold without the yeah. storyline,
0: yeah. And Maritato is now 2-5 and five in Ring of Honor when the whole point of his gimmick was how he's doing so much better now that he's left the FBI behind. And spoiling what's going to happen in the interview at the near the end of the show, Mama Luke basically gives up the gimmick. Like, at the end of the show, there's an interview where Ma- Maritato comes up to Mama Luke and is like, you know, you beat me fair and square, you did a great job, you're great. And then he tries to talk him into giving up the FBI gimmick one more time. And somehow, for some reason, the 127th time he's given this speech is the time it sticks. Now that Meritano finally won the rights to this gimmick, he now is just like, oh, I guess you're right, okay.
1: I wonder if it's because, and maybe it's thinking a little too hard, WWF bought the rights to the gimmick?
0: It's possible because, again, I never thought of that. But, I mean, they yeah, they do use the FBI gimmick soon. In WWE, so I have to imagine WWE is not going to share that with anybody. But just if you were following this and actually cared about this feud, which again I admit no one, including us, did, it's what an unsatisfying way to end it. And and it would not be the last match on this show where, where where a bunch of guys fought over a meaningless gimmick, and then the guy who won it says, "I don't want this."
1: Yeah, actually, there's a bunch of meaningless gimmicks that happen on this show uh, stipulation wise um, besides the one that you're mentioning but yes we will get to it
0: yeah so next up is akuto hotaka taking on the amazing red and the amazing red wins in 13 minutes 40 seconds via pinfall after he hits his standard infrared standing shooting star press combo i like this i thought this was a fun match i it could have been even better i thought this was bordering on outright good but it was exciting there was some there were some botches you know from both guys but i, I thought this was a match where you could tell they were really trying to have a show stealer i don't think they quite got to a show stealer level especially considering what's coming up later on the card but you could tell watching them they were trying to have that kind of match where they were throwing everything out there they got a good amount of time they were trying to hit really big moves big dives um, there's a scary moment where Red does a tope kanjilo and he basically completely overshoots Hidaka, and he's able to land on his feet, but he was going so fast that the momentum keeps him tumbling into the guardrail hard. Um, and there, there's a few moments like that in the match where there's. Just a, a bit of sloppiness. There's a botched Tornado t- DDT. There's a moment where Hadaka sells a kick to the arm like it hit him in the head when it clearly didn't. But tons of big high-flying moves here. And the one thing that really bugged me, I have to admit, at the end is I've been going on a bit about how Red, when he hits the infrared, seems like more than half the time he can't hit it right, where he comes down really hard and he... ear usually either barely hits the guy or he lands right on their legs instead of their torso and that you shouldn't have a finisher, you can't hit consistently. And here is one of the worst examples because his feet smack and graze into Hadaka's face for the finish on the infrared and almost immediately after the... We can tell immediately he's hurt because he's grabbing his face. Almost immediately after the match, the camera zooms in. He's He's got a little cut on his eye and he's his, his face is already swelling up. In The Observer, Dave says his face got swollen bad after Red, quote, crushed his face doing the infrared. And it just it bugs me because this isn't like one of those one in a million random botches. Like, if you watched Red do the infrared on every Ring of Honor show, you could see something like this being a distinct possibility happening. And it finally did. You know, he just crushed some guy's face.
1: Yeah, I mean, although I will say that's sort of the risk of doing the high-flang wrestling. um, You know, but you're right. Did some guys seem more on target than others, and that particular move doesn't seem on target when Red does it um, a lot of the time? Um, I will say though, um, about the match itself, I thought the beginning was really good. Like I thought both guys looked really on. I don't think it was going to be a really awesome match, but I thought the execution didn't really meet the ambition. Um, There's just, you know, I agree. Yeah, like the botches going down the stretch were noticeable it was still fun it was still exciting so i would agree it was still you know good you know i'd say on the border of good um you know it, this was the first uh, of the guys taking out the guardrail which happens a lot on this show to the <laughs> point where i'm like All right, get better guardrails dude it's like it's just it's too much it's too much destruction of guardrails it's like what's the point of even having them um other than to have guys destroy them over and over again but that that's pretty much what i'd say about the match it was a um a very exciting match um but it wasn't as well executed as it maybe could have been.
0: Yeah, it, they were trying to have something as big as, like, it wasn't quite the same match, but something as big as Red and Low Key, and it did not have that level of execution. Right. But,
1: it was, but the debu- at least it was the debut of Red, at least in ROH, of Red calling the 619, the 718. Oh, which, yeah. Which is the outer borough area code in NYC.
0: Yeah, there's a few people that chat, and then Gabe sells real hard. Like, I think he did it first, so that's what we're gonna call it—the seven one eight. It's just one of those little snarky Gabe moments where. Um, oh, I also have to note that Gabe during this match does one of his very eloquent, almost Shakespearean explanations of rules. Where when they're fighting, when Red and Hadaka are fighting on the outside, at one point he says, "Quote, countouts are stupid, yep. so Ring of Honor got rid of them." Yeah,
1: very, so very, very Shakespearean.
0: I mean, he does go on to say that referees still have the discretion to disqualify someone if he thinks they're lingering too long on the outside. But just the way he said it sounded again like a petulant little kid. Like countouts are stupid, so although, Ring of Honor got rid of them.
1: Although you know, when 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 he like disses Lucha and stuff like that, I think it's annoying. But I sort of agree with him on the countouts are stupid thing. Like imagine. The fact that you know there have been matches where, as an out for a finish, you'll have the bad guy walk away and get counted out on purpose. Like imagine that that's allowed, and you get to keep your title. Like there are some rules in wrestling, just like old school rules, that just are straight up stupid. And I think the way countouts are employed by bookers is stupid.
0: And it, it's a it's a noble thing for a booker to to forego because it does give you one less option you know there's one cheap option you don't have on the table anymore you know you you can't just book a cheap out finish so you know i agree it's a good move but just the way he says it you know he never i feel like people could sell it better than gabe you know gabe always as we read in that press release i read earlier they try and sell the company as you know Ring of Honor is all about honor, but sometimes when you listen to Game on commentary, he comes off as very immature. The cracking jokes about other promotions, you know, just saying counts are stupid. Yeah, there, there, it feels like there should, there needs to be a more eloquent voice kind of representing what Ring of Honor is trying to sell. But you get, you, you take what you get. Yeah, I mean,
1: it is what it is. There, were jo- I think there just wasn't a more eloquent voice out there that could have done it.
0: Yeah. So, next we have another classic staple of the early Ring of Honor shows, which is the kind of a tryout match that barely goes any length of time at all. For the Texas promotion ETV, for their ETV TV title, Fast Eddie successfully defended his title. ETW,
1: ETW, actually.
0: ETW? Uh, Pretty sure, I think I typoed that. I'll have to. Uh Thank you. You fixed my review before it goes up. Um, Fast Eddie defeated... Don Juan in three minutes twenty five seconds via pinfall with a move I think he calls the fast fast or fastidious, but it's just basically kind of a moonsault follow away slam. Uh, Matt, it's your turn to talk, but I don't know how much you have to say about a three and a half minute match. Well, I can mention
1: that um, fast Eddie's trunks say better than you, so I guess that means he's straight edge. Um, that's a you should all get that reference right if you're listening to this,
0: <laughs> right? Um, if you don't get it now, you'll get it in, like, seven episodes or something. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um,
1: yeah, I mean, it's, it's really short. Um, they make a big point about how fast Eddie is legally blind. He's not allowed to drive, but he can wrestle. So that's a weird uh, – that's weird. Right, I don't know. Does that sound weird to you? I,
0: I, I remember when I was a kid, legally blind. I just thought people were really blind, and then it lost a uh, not that still not horrible. But then I remember at a certain age, realize someone telling me that like legally blind can just mean your eyesight's really bad, but not like your Ray Charles. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't see
1: like like darkness. Like I guess he can make out shapes. But if someone's not allowed to drive, it is weird that they could just like legally throw other guys around and try to throw fake. Punches and kicks that don't actually hurt them, you know, stuff like that. But he did a good job of it, I guess. He had a decent dish in the career.
0: Wasn't Stan Hansen also legally blind or something to that or close to it? I remember people saying like he would just throw that lariat so hard and you know try and hit you in the chest. But I think I remember people saying that I don't know if this was for his whole career but Stan Hansen's eyesight was also notoriously bad.
1: Yes, that is true. I don't know if Stan Hansen also wasn't allowed to drive. I'm not sure, but it'd be interesting to f- to find that out.
0: I'm going to say based on his reputation maybe he shouldn't be allowed to drive even if he wasn't legally blind.
1: that's that's a, Yeah, that's fair, too. Well, actually, that probably shows that he probably was allowed to drive, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> but yeah, so... Um, um, I, I, I don't really know what to say. I mean, the uh, Don Juan doesn't move where it's like an ace crusher where uh, Fast Eddie's legs are draped over the top rope. It sort of felt like a precursor to the Tower of London move that Nigel McGuinness would do mm-hmm. um, for a few years. Uh, the follow-up moonsault slam, I thought, was actually... Kind of cool, um, and uh, it seemed like the crowd actually was into this. Like uh, it was, it was total like short nothing match, but the crowd reacted pretty well to it. Um, for usually the crowds are dead for those matches, so that says something, right? That you make a good enough impression to get the crowd reacting positively in that short of a time.
0: I mean, they did what the only thing I think you can do when you have three minutes and you're in front of a crowd that doesn't know who you are, which is just throw out your biggest craziest spots and they they pulled off everything they tried um don juan don juan's the kind of guy where even when i see him successfully pull things off sometimes it feels like he's just barely like he's just doing it by the skin of his teeth but he didn't screw anything up here they did big moves i will note that in little over three minutes, they both found a moment each to nearly die. Don Juan takes a, a bump through the ropes to the outside and he appears to kind of nick one of the ropes, which causes him to just to drop straight down hard to the floor like a sack of potatoes. And then later, Eddie does a uh, dive and barely hits Juan and then smacks hard into the floor and guardrail, kind of like what Red did in the previous match. So, but as you said, I think these these guys, by the end of the match, they had done enough cool spots where the crowd was appreciative of them. And I think when you're unknown and you have this little time, that's, that's really all you can ask for, is to get any reaction by the end of the match.
1: And both guys stick around in ROH for a while, and Fast Eddie has like a, almost a decentish career there, uh, half-decent anyway. So I guess all in all, a successful debut for him.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, he uh, on these... You know, Texas Wrestling Academy, Texas Mainstay Wrestler Scale, he won't be on the Spanky Dragon London Scale, but he won't on level, but he won't be the biohazard, you know, right. level either, so exactly. he'll, he'll be in the middle, but... Post-match, Biohazard does run in, and he tosses Fast Eddie and Juan around, while Michael Shane holds on to Rudy Boy Gonzalez, holding him back, because Rudy was at ringside watching his students. Out comes Steve Carino, who gets on the mic, and he tells Rudy that he's taken his students, and he now he's taken his girl, referring to Simply Luscious. It's kind of weird, because isn't Simply Luscious just another one of his students? And... Carino makes it even creepier by saying sometimes when he's in bed with Simply Luscious, he tells her to call him Rudy. So that gets a kind of Ooh, crowd yeah. crowd reaction. Yeah, definitely creepy. Yeah, and Rudy gets on the mic. He has two lines to say, and he fucks it up. Yeah. He His first line, he calls Carino uh, Dusty Rhodes wannabe, which gets a good reaction. And then he has one simple line to say about something like, I only have one thing to say. But he stumbles over the words and awkwardly, and looks confused, and then just does what he's supposed to do, which is hit Carino with the mic, which leads into the next match. But again, Rudy Boy horrible on the mic; couldn't I, even do two lines.
1: I wonder who the promo teacher was at the Texas Wrestling Academy.
0: Like, but I, it's hope ama- it, I
1: hope it was not Rudy Boy.
0: It's it's amazing that people would harp on. I think somewhat unfairly Brian Danielson's charisma early on in his career, where the more you watch Rudy Boy, like Brian Danielson in his least charismatic was 10 times smoother on the mic than Rudy Boy Gonzalez was 20-something years his senior. You know, and that was the guy who was teaching him. So
1: even more impressive in that respect. It's very clear that Brian Danielson was never as bland as people say he was. Like, never.
0: Yeah. But I'm it I'm even more seeing, I mean, maybe Shawn Michaels gave them some advice about, you know, Mike stuff, but I know they referred to Rudy Boy as the guy who did the real bulk of their training, and the, I, I'm telling you, they certainly didn't learn promos from Rudy Boy, but that leads right into the Texas death match, Steve Carino finally facing Rudy Boy Gonzalez, Steve Carino defeats Rudy Boy in eight minutes. When he submits him with a cobra, cr- cobra Clutch, and as per the rules of a Texas death match, you pin or submit a guy, they have 10 minutes, 10 seconds, not 10 minutes, that'd be a completely different kind of match I'd like to see. <laughs> they get 10 seconds to get to their back to their feet, and if they don't, the match is over. So, Carino submits, makes some pass out, or submits him with a Cobra Clutch, I think makes him pass out, and then... Can't get to his feet. This was this was weird. in a, In a vacuum, the match was fine. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible.
1: Well structured, at least, right? Like a decent um, structure for this kind of match.
0: Well, it, it depends what you mean by structure, because I did like I like the start where you know the angry Rudy Boy smacks Carino with the mic. Carino instantly gets blood right from the jump of the match because of that. And after smacking him with the mic. Rudy Boy makes the pin and gets the first fall of the match, but Carino gets to his feet before the 10 count. And I thought that was a good start. And I also love whenever someone hits someone with the mic and the mic is still on. I always just, that's one of those weird little things I like in wrestling. I like hearing the sound. And then you get kind of a standard brawl on the outside Not great, not terrible. I thought Rudy Boy, he did some horrible stops, but he also took some really good bumps for a guy kind of as fat and stout. Like, he's not super fat, but he's a big, thick, short kind of barrel of a man. And he takes, like, a flip bump on a Carino clothesline. He throws a really good super kick, actually. Like, gets his leg up really high. So, I was surprised where he has some good mobility for a guy his size, but... Overall, it was just kind of a regular brawl for eight minutes, and I think the one thing that was a little weird was it's another feud where the cur- the Rudy Boy Texas the Rudy Boy feud with the Michael Shane stuff will kind of continue, but um, this is kind of the end of the the blow off of the Carino part of the Rudy Boy feud in a lot of ways, and and again another unsatisfying feud end where. Carino the heel puts Rudy Boy down clean as a whistle. And in a Texas deathmatch, there's only two falls in this death, death match. Like, one of the things that makes a Texas death Match a Texas deathmatch is you get those ten counts, like a last man standing. And you only get the one at the very start on Carino. And I think the only other one is the Cobra Clutch at the end. And the end of the match is just Carino beats on Rudy Boy for a few minutes. He p- makes him pass out in the Cobra Clutch. And... Rudy Boy doesn't even get close to getting to his feet in time for the 10 count, and he just loses clean quickly in eight minutes. It was a weird way to end the feud. Uh, like, I, a, a feud that was pointless to begin with, probably. I
1: get what you're saying, but think about what you're asking for here. You want a um, this match to be longer and have more drama. Keep in mind, it's Rudy Boy-Gonzalez in the match. So, I don't know that they really could have effectively done that.
0: Um, no, I, I agree. I agree that, like... You're kind of in a damned if you do, damned if you don't, because do you really want, on Carino's first night in, as an active wrestler, Rudy Boy Gonzalez beating him? Or as
1: a a fan of watching this, do you want a long match involving Rudy Boy Gonzalez versus Steve Carino in a Texas death match?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I think the correct answer to this is they probably shouldn't have started this feud to begin with. Because now you're in the position where you have to blow it off somehow, and I don't think there's a way to do it in know, I don't think there's a way to do it where it's both satisfying and good for the company and good for our enjoyment. I None I of this was horrible.
1: I suppose, but I also don't think there's anything wrong with a heel winning a feud sometimes. Especially against someone like Rudy Boy, who's not even one of the real wrestlers in the company. Um so I, the reason I said well structured is because you know it started out with Rudy kind of getting the heat on Carino, I mean or getting the shine on Carino. Carino bled immediately. And then Carino just does all sorts of dirty tricks to take over, and he wins because he's younger and uh, becoming a full-time wrestler. While well, Rudy Boy is basically just a manager slash trainer or whatever. Um, I think the thing that made the match worse than it should have been is that Rudy has no personality at all, yeah. And so it was just it was all Carino carrying it, and Carino does a good job with that stuff with the heel, um, you know, preening and stuff, and like the you know showing ass. So I thought that was fine. Um, And that's the best that I could ask. It was fine. I don't think it was terrible. But I don't think I would have wanted more from it. I wouldn't have wanted Rudy to go over, and I wouldn't have wanted a longer match. So I'm okay with uh, exactly how they did it uh, on that night.
0: I will give also credit to uh, Gabe here on commentary. I, I, I thought Gabe's commentary was a step down from his first show but lots of bumbling over his words like he was the host of Through the Years and lots of just, like, awkward comments. But I, I did—I will give credit where credit is due. He made an interesting point on commentary where he talked about how Credo gained fame being known as the guy who bled a lot in Philadelphia. But, you know, he stressed how Steve wanted to change his image to being kind of a serious wrestler who was a fairly big name in Japan at this point. And here he is right at the start of the match bleeding in Philly again. I thought that was kind of an interesting way to frame the match and bring that up. So I'll I'll give credit to that. I'll give negative credit to the end where Gabe does another one of those things where he always wants to make sure a lot of guys get put over. So Gabe says this match is a victory for Rudy Boy because he made Carino bleed. But when everybody in wrestling makes Carino bleed, I don't know if that's like Gabe's trying to sell this as, you know, he lost the battle, but you know, he made Carino bleed. Well I mean if I touched Carito's forehead, I probably could make him bleed. Right, so he
1: flicked his ear or something. Yeah,
0: I get it. Yeah. But yeah, just average and that's the end of the kind of the of the Rudy Boy feud, I would say. Um God, is there anything well, they, else?
1: They, well, they, well they attack they attack Rudy more after.
0: He puts the, the yeah. cobra back on him. Carino Shane and Hazard. Paul London runs in and he cleans house with a ladder. Biohazard, I guess it said in the Observer. Got a chipped tooth from the from a kick from Paul London.
1: Okay, actually, this is this is one point. Give me a give me a moment to go into. It's not a rant, but it is a thing that I notice about Sapolsky's commentary that drives me nuts. And I'm pretty sure he does this for the rest of his time doing. I know what you're going
0: to say. Yeah.
1: Years where like he knows something happened, like an injury or something like that. So he'll pretend he noticed it live. Like, mm-hmm. where he makes himself seem a little bit smarter than everybody else. Like, oh, he must have chipped Biohazard's tooth. And it's like, yeah, you just know that because you saw them backstage. But, like, nobody watching would have noticed that. You would not have noticed that on commentary. Later on, he does the same thing in the low-key versus Joe match, where he's like, look at that bruise. Look at that bruise. And you can- I was looking closely. You can't see any bruise. But clearly you saw the bruise after they got back into the dressing room. So you're pretending – does that.
0: Yeah. He does that with the Hadaka match too, where the second like red smacks him. He's like, oh, his face, you know, he hit him right in the under the eye or something like that. And you know, you don't—he he hit so fast. You would only know to talk about it like that if you knew. That that he really did hurt him, you and know. He, and
1: he, I, I'm pretty sure he never. Am I, I might be misremembering, like with my apparent Jay Briscoe, Jay Driller situation, that I'm embarrassingly wrong about. So seemingly, but, your day will come. Yeah, my day might come. But <laughs> but it does. I'm pretty sure that Sapolsky does that forever when he does commentary, like that he'll just like if he knows about an injury, like oh, he must have a concussion from that move or something like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just. It's 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 awkward. I think it's the best word for it. It's really awkward. It's really yeah. forced. Like he really yeah. wants to to impress you, but he, he again, he just Gabe is a guy where a lot of his intentions are good, but he has no smoothness, no grace to subtlety. like, yeah, no subtlety at all. Yeah. And so everything just gets shouted out really abruptly with no yeah. nothing. You know, Gabe just pushes it right in your face. There and, there,
1: there comes a point where I really enjoy Gabe's commentary, even despite its flaws, like because he has the passion for it, he, gets, he knows the angles to put over. But yeah, it's a lot of like beating you over the head with these points, to the point where it can become distracting sometimes.
0: I would say Gabe is a guy where he can be fairly enjoyable on commentary, but he has a lot of these quirks, and it's just a roll of the dice of, is this match going to trigger, trigger a, a lot of these kind of annoying habits he has? Because some matches won't, And then, you know, like a match or a segment like this where a real injury happens, that's going to pull out one of those things about Gabe that's really annoying. And going back to what we said earlier about Jeff Gorman, his biggest kind of good thing is he doesn't appear to have any like really distinct annoying quirk that's going to distract you the way a Gabe will.
1: Right. Gorman knows what he's talking about and just talks about it. Yeah. And that's. By the ROH commentary standards, that's amazing. I mean, even by this point, Gabe is still much better than Donnie B and Karina were. But like Gorman, just he's completely inoffensive, which to me is very high marks in a in a, an ROH commentary.
0: You know what Jeff Gorman is, Matt? He's the water of Ring really of commentary. He's flavorless but very refreshing that's at r- times.
1: That's right. That's exactly it. And that makes him the third or fourth best commentator. <laughs> In
0: ROH history, <laughs> that really does, at and and so, least in and the DVD
1: era, I should say. Post- yeah, post-production era,
0: eh, maybe in every era. I'm not sure, but uh, Paul London going back to the segment. Paul London comes in, and he was facing Biohazard and Shane and out. He has a ladder with him because he's now Mister Ladder Guy, and he he tries to repeat the same spot he did on the on unscripted, the big famous. Set their ladder up on the corner, run up it, jump onto the wrestlers in the aisle. Except this time, one of the scariest spots I've seen in quite some time. He jumps way too far to one side, and lands basically in the crowd. Like I um, I rewound and advanced this very slowly so I could see how he lands. Try to imagine for people that aren't going to see this. You know, Ring of Honor has a little entrance area where curtain where guys come through. And then there's a little aisle with two guardrails on fans on either side that takes you down to the ringside area. So – and one of the corners is pointing – of the ring is pointing down that aisle. London jumps off the ladder and goes so far to one side on his jump, he landed with his armpit on the rail and the rest of his body from the armpit down in the crowd, in the fans. It's, like, it's
1: it's scary, but it's also funny because the way the guys want it, they try to catch him, so they sort of like jump over the guardrail yeah. while they're catching him. So it's like this really like weird like it's almost like when um, Samuel L. Jackson punched Gerald Briscoe and Pat Patterson fell down like <laughs> like like there's some like force that's making them take the bump like they're diving over the rail to catch this guy.
0: And something I've gotten addicted to too along I, – I love watching those bumps, like the, the jumps like that. But I also have gotten uh, – this is a bad thing to get addicted to. But whenever something crazy dangerous happens, looking for Gabe and Rob to run out because this is another one of those moments where I would say the second London lands, you see Gabe running through the curtain and then you see Rob Moore in the background. Like Gabe was just – I mean he was probably still in the air when Gabe was like, I better get out there. Yeah, it's
1: probably just, because – well, first of all, London was like one of the guys they were going to count on, so that's especially panicking.
0: Yeah, and he had a match late, like one of the key matches later in the night, and it, it's it's if he had fallen a few more inches in one direction, he could have broken his neck, you know, yeah. he could have seriously hurt a fan, I don't know if this is, a, this is what we're seeing, but later when he comes out for his match, he like kind of leans in and like talks to a fan and like pats him on the back i think or something that was in that section so it's possible he might have even had to to be like hey are you still doing okay man like i'm sorry i landed on you i don't know if that was what what we were seeing but it's in that exact same area when he comes out later i mean this could have broke bad in six different ways and paul london magically is just up walking 30 seconds later
1: I, uh, I I wish I had the old Gorilla Monsoon drop board that Joe Gagné did like 10 years ago on a, on, a, um, on a podcast that I was on because I would have had him say, and that's why they call them high-risk maneuvers.
0: <laughs> you would also get a lot of use out of the will you stop button on me, so oh, maybe we should see if Joe can. <laughs>
1: oh, please. That's what I would, would say, you? will you stop, when you do the self-deprecating. <laughs> that's when I would do it.
0: Joe, send that the board. Send the entire... I know it's a real audio board. Just yeah. FedEx it to him. Uh-huh. So, I definitely
1: have room in my apartment for an audio board.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. So, that that's the end of the segment. It's just building up, you know... We're transitioning away from the Rudy Boy part of this feud, but we're still keeping the London-Michael Shane part of the feud on. London ends up standing tall in the ring as... Carino has to hold back Michael Shane from running back into the ring. And... It's again. It's weird that Paul London's fine. Biohazard is the guy with the chip tooth in this ma- in this segment. Uh-huh. But finally, we go on to the. Uh, it's safe to say, even though the show isn't over, the best match by far on the show, the fight without honor, which was a little bit weird to bill it as that because fights without honor are generally no DQ, crazy gimmick matches. There was but this, nothing is, the, this the- is
1: the first fight without honor, so yeah, th- that that, this- that had not been established yet.
0: But there was nothing in this match that couldn't have been done in a regular Rules Ring of Honor match. There's no rule breaking here. And that's Low-Key taking on Samoa Joe. Low-Key beat Samoa Joe in 1625 via pinfall after he just puts Joe down with one big clubbing blow to the back of the head during a strike exchange. Matt, it's your turn to talk, but I will give a bit of background before this match because there's actually a few points to talk about quickly. First, I'll note this, obviously, the big story is this is Samoa Joe's first match in Ring of Honor, and it wasn't initially support, intended to be necessarily a long-term thing. I went back and watched part of my Samoa Joe VHS shoot interview from the Straight Shooting Series, and I kind of paraphrased what Joe was talking about here, where he said that Daniels and a, Christopher Daniels and a couple other guys in Ring of Honor were kept telling Gabe to bring Joe in. They were recommending him, but Gabe was hesitant, to uh, because Joe was an expensive California fly-in. And at this point on the shoot, it's kind of funny. Joe, like, starts joking about how Gabe's cheap, and he knows Gabe's watching in the room doing during the shoot interview, and he's just laughing and, like, ribbing Gabe. Like, oh, I'm Gabe. I'm a cheap promoter. And he's just really ribbing him. It's pretty funny. But then Gabe did bring him in for this one match, which was, I guess, Joe kind of acts like he thought it was going to be a one-time thing. And Gabe tells him he wants the exact same match, that, low key, that he had with Low-Key at the King of Indies tournament. And then Joe says, I think the match got a better reaction than Gabe was expecting, because when I came back through the curtain, one of the first things Gabe was doing was saying, here's a few more shows I want to book you on. And the other big story of this match was on the Low-Key side, which is, I'll go to the observer for this. He was actually pulled from the show the day before due to ankle and rib injuries. He called on the morning of the show and actually said that not only would he be unable to wrestle, but wouldn't even be able to make an appearance at the show. Then at 5 p.m. he called again and said he was on his way and going to wrestle. He literally couldn't do anything requiring movement or flying, so they did a pride-style match where they beat each other up. He really needs some time off, but with TNA and a Japan tour coming, I don't think that's going to happen for at least a few weeks. So that's kind of all the background around the match, Matt. What did you think about the match itself?
1: Well, they didn't do. They did indeed do that uh, um, submission, you know, pr- almost Pride style match. Um, you have to wonder if it maybe even artistically helped the match because it was something fairly different, very grounded. No, uh, no running, no running the ropes at all. So in that sense, it was kind of like the early parts of the um, Dragon versus Loki match from Round Robin Challenge, but less submissions although they did do some and more striking oriented you know a lot of like hard forearm and slap exchanges um uh the submissions were mostly done by joe like loki did a few different things where he was like climbing on joe and bending his arm up but you know joe did his whole sequence with the uh you know the cross face into the stf into you know whatever but you know they were i mean the big thing that everyone remembers about this match is that it was just so stiff like, probably too stiff. Um, they were, I mean, legitimately it looked like punching each other. Um, at least the parts where they were hitting in the chest, right? People, they did get bruises. I didn't notice any, like, black eyes or anything, so they obviously weren't fully punching each other in the face. But those those open hand slaps that they gave were seemed pretty full force to me, or pretty close to it. Um, um, at one point, uh, Joe uh, hits a stiff clothesline, and then just then he just screams. Um, Joe hits a really good bridging German suplex, which I don't think Joe really did much of a couple, within a year or two. You didn't see that. Then, Key hits a bridging Tiger suplex, which I thought was really cool on a guy, because even, even at this point, Joe was pretty big. You know, he was nowhere near as big as he would become, but he was a big guy. Then um, they do, uh, they do loud, a loud slap exchange with, and then that ends with Key giving an enziguri, and they do this whole thing where they exchange one-counts, Mm-hmm. um like that's like one of the big things in the match where they just like the whole thing is like they're showing how tough they are so they pop up at one um Joe does the face wash um and the announcers kind of put are starting to really put him over like really huge at this point um you know he's clearly like you could tell like they're just like in love with him like Gabe specifically um he starts working over the shoulder then he does a, a high angle backdrop driver on Joe which got a holy shit chant um Joe fights out of the dragon clutch and stands up and turns it into a Death Valley driver, which I thought was a really cool reversal. Then hits an island driver, but he's foots on the ropes. Um, then uh, they do the whole thing where uh, they kick each other in the back and then they slowly stand up and get in each other's face, almost like to shrug off the pain. The, so, so Key does... So Key kicks Joe. Joe slowly stands up. Joe kicks Key. Um, Key stands up. Um, then kind of gets in Key's face. Uh, slaps him. They they do the pretty famous spot in the match where at this point they take off their wrist tape and pull down their kick pads, so I guess it's like no no protection from the shots, and they just they just start laying into each other. They do uh, they running boots, they trade clotheslines and get right back up. Another standing ovation. Joe uh, hits a few spinning chops, but he blocks and then just goes nuts. Like he just kicks him over and over in the head with the Kawada kicks, then knees to the head. And Joe just lets out one last scream, and Key punches him one more time in the head, and Key gets the pin when Joe collapses, which is a very unique finish, I will have to say. No finishing moves. They just totally went for something different, Um, made both guys out to be just, like, tough. And, you know, Key's whole thing was that he was the hardest hitter and the biggest striker, and they made Joe out to be basically his equal or even his better when it came to that, which made Joe, in one night, um, a huge star. So... Um, You know, it wasn't as dynamic as some of the other great ROH matches or as dramatic, so I think it probably doesn't get remembered quite that level, but it was a really great match, and it was different. Um, You know, I don't think it was like a full shoot-style match. I did a lot of pro wrestling spots, but it was just different and grounded enough to make it stand out as really cool and unique. So, great match!
0: I I thought it was great as well. I I thought, again, when you watch this with the context of Loki being injured, it is interesting where, apart from some high jump insecurities and a kafu kick, where you know where he does the kind of the forward roll into the kick, he really does nothing like flying or really agile. This is a very grounded match, and I think these two they do a lot of things that indie wrestlers do a lot nowadays. But everything here feels earned. Like a lot of guys, they'll do the one count kick out. Or the big late match, you know, we're going to stand up and kind of adjust our gear and have one big fight at the end. Or we're just going to trade slaps. Like, a lot of matches do one of those things, but it doesn't really fit in the context of the match. A lot of times I watch matches where I see something like that and I go, this is cool, but it's clearly, you're just throwing this in there because it's something you've seen on tapes, maybe even this tape. And you know it's cool and you're going to do it. Where this match, like, right from the start, early in the match, they're doing the one counts. And right from the start, they're being so stiff with each other. And it feels like the story, like, it's not just being done to do it. It feels like the story of the match is here's two of the toughest guys on the scene. And they're kind of, they're they're going to see who's tougher. You know, it's not even about who's craftier or who's smarter, who's the better wrestler. It's about who's tougher. We're going to beat on each other till one of us goes down. And this is easily the stiffest match in Ring of Honor history. It far surpassed thus far, at least. And I think probably in general, I think it far surpasses the only other match I would think is even close to consideration, which is AJ Styles low-key from Honor Invades Boston. This is far stiffer. You hear so many thuds and slaps and hits, and it sounds like a modern indie match, but there's no thigh slapping. It's just two guys hitting hard in safe places. Pretty much full force, super hard slaps to the face early on. He um, does ground and pound on Joe, and he's punching him in his chest like almost as hard as he can. You can just hear the thud of him just smacking him right in the chest.
1: And they make sure to get like real close-ups of the ground and pound stuff, so you could really see that they are they are like just laying it into each other.
0: I thought that was really good camera work too, and you can really hear it later on. I mean, they did do a good job. I think, as for the most part, they did the the typical. What they always say is, you know, hit hard but in a safe place. Like there's times where Key is full on punting Joe in the chest when he's bent over. But again, he's hitting him in the chest. He's slapping him in the face. They're kicking each other in the back. But no one, no
1: one, no one has a black eye, and no one has a broken jaw.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no one's, I te-
1: mean- no one's teeth get knocked out. Yeah.
0: The most dangerous thing they did was probably the slaps and what you mentioned, the backdrop driver Joe took where he almost landed right on his head. That looked like it could have been pretty scary.
1: I never feel like those Kawada kicks are safe. I don't care where they do it. Like, that that just seems like too much margin for error. So I, I'm not cool with those necessarily.
0: Those are the kind of things where, you know, eight could miss, but if the one hits, like, yeah, yeah you could get really screwed up. Right. Like you have to have a lot of trust of some like I wouldn't trust Loki as talented as he is, knowing how he slipped up sometimes to like, okay Loki, throw seventeen of these in forty five seconds. Yeah. I I wouldn't trust that. But Joe obviously did and just really entertaining stiff match. Um I even I, I like the finish too where again they did the standoff and it felt I just keep saying that word, it felt earned where they're almost like in a saloon where they're standing up and they res- they respect each other and they're pulling off the tape and they're adjusting the kick pads. And then they have that one final minute or 90 second flurry. And then a few times in the match, one or the other guys kind of hulked up where they would get up and either just look really angry or scream. And then it felt like Loki was just putting down Joe, you know, where Ke- Joe rises up one more time and screams from a big punch to the back of the head. And Key just hits one more. Joe instantly crumples to the ground like he's dead, and he jumps on him immediately for the cover to win. So it just felt like, you know, like he was putting somebody down. Like, it was just going to be, neither of these guys' spirits was going to break. It was going to be who was just going to get knocked out first. And great match, and so great, actually, we have a flip on one of my regular segments, which is Dave Meltzer gives credit to a Ring of Honor match, but then says it's not as good as a wwe match <laughs> now here's the opposite it's dave Meltzer, one won the first ever dave Meltzer credits a ring of honor match and then says it's better than a japanese match where dave goes and i quote the only match i've seen from the october 5th ring of honor show was the samoa joe versus low key match which people were saying was the best match it was pretty sick as hard as they were pounding on each other to the face particularly cracking heads on purpose in doing UFC positioning and spots. It wasn't as stiff as Masawa Takayama, but it was a better overall match. It was significantly better than their King of Indies match last year, and that was a great match. Yeah, so well,
1: it's not surprising that, like, these two guys are the ones that, you know, are seen as, like, the greats. You know, obviously, Loki has his problems that led to him not having that, but, like, Samoa Joe, you know, one of the great wrestlers of the past 20 years, and, uh... It's not, you know, so the fact that they were getting this kind of praise back then is not necessarily that surprising.
0: And it was interesting for me to see that knowing that in the shoot interview, Gabe's, I mean, Joe said that Gabe basically told him, I want the King of Indies match. And here you have Dave who saw the King of Indies match saying this was significantly better. So I have to imagine if Gabe was probably thrilled, then if, if he wanted the King of Indies match and Dave's out here writing to everybody, this was way better than that. He had to have been happy. Obviously, he was happy. He kept booking him. Like you said, He was you could tell he was really into Joe on commentary. So
1: I, I do wonder also, though, how much of it is the crowd. Because I've seen some like, King of Indies matches, and the crowd seems pretty quiet compared to what I'm used to on these ROH shows. So I think that ROH really did, especially in the early days, have really reactive crowds to like the more grounded stuff in a way that a lot of other indies never had.
0: Yeah, because this match is nothing but hard hits and some submissions and, you know, groundwork. So not every crowd would be, I think every crowd would probably be into the stiffness, but I don't think every crowd would be this into this kind of match. And it it works even more for me because it's just so different from everything else on the show.
1: Yeah, th- th- I definitely agree with that. And also, um I should mention the match was so good that I we can I think we pretty much forgot to mention which, like the context of the match, which is that Samoa Joe is supposed to the reason it's a fight without honor is that Samoa Joe is the prophecy's hired assassin. Um so basically he's he's supposed to just be a hired gun uh, t- and his job is just to take out Loki. Like that was his goal. He just wants to take Loki out so he's no longer a threat to Daniel's and Xavier's uh titles and um and it was a fight without honor because there's no handshake because the prophecy doesn't shake hands. And Samoa Joe is a hired gun who doesn't care about the code of honor. But after the match, he does shake Loki's hand, and
0: mm-hmm. then
1: they then they hold up the uh, the uh, zero one banner together. So he's sort of not doing what he's uh, he's not fully buying into what the group that's paying him. Which I think is also part of the angle.
0: I thought that was really interesting too, where they sold Joe as a hired gun. But already on this show, and maybe they gave just added this with the backstage segments once. Although probably not, because they had this in ring in ring segment where it's interesting that usually in feuds, I think if you would do the hired gun and then he kind of turns on his employers, you might slowly develop that. But they plant the seeds pretty heavy on show one. You know, with a segment that'll come later at the end of the show, and with this where yeah, he, he's Daniel's hired gun. But he's not going to act the same way the Prophecy does. He's right. just there to beat someone up and get a paycheck. Exactly. And if he wants to shake a hand, he's going to shake a hand. So, yeah, great match. And I hate always saying – well, I, I'll, I could say this for later, but this is yet again the best match on the show, and it's for free on Ring of Honor's official YouTube account. So, in a way, that's great, but it's always weird. It's going to affect my re- re- recommendation of the show later, but – Look for this on YouTube, legally there. You can watch this for free right now. There's no reason not to watch this match. It's great. Um, up next is Prince Nana squashing Elax. This is not for free on YouTube and not great. Uh, Prince Nana beat Elax in 55 seconds via pinfall after kind of an implant arms trap suplex. I looked up the description. It's like a trapping suplex where almost like a brain buster but with their arms under... Your opponent's arms under your arms. Um, they didn't even give this match commentary or entrances. They just shoved it on the show. At one point, Nana loads his crown with something for a headbutt in full view of the referee, and the referee does nothing about it. Um, nothing happens in this match. I, gu-
1: I guess that was a mix of ROH and CCW rules. <laughs> uh,
0: and after the match, Dana Marcos get in the ring. They challenge Nana. They say... There, we are the top tag team in Ring of Honor Catch Race, which just sounds like it's starting to get over a little bit with some of the crowd. Mm-hmm. They're finally getting some of the DVDs or VHS tapes. Then Slugger comes out, the big tall man in the suit with the dreads and the shades. He attacks them bo- both of the Ring Crew Express while Nana flees. He calmly walks back to one of the walls of the building to watch one of the rest of the shows. Utterly pointless, but at least this was all probably two or three minutes in total.
1: Yeah, I mean the more I'm seeing how slowly they built up Slugger, I um I almost wonder uh why. <laughs> but I guess yeah. we'll get to that once he actually becomes a thing.
0: This is another thing where they're really they're doing a fair bit of build for what's not going to be a huge payoff, although maybe in the rewatch I'll just be like, "Matt, Slugger's a, reg- a revel revelation. This is this is incredible."
1: Yeah, but, it's almost like the build to Glacier's debut.
0: Oh, blood runs cold, but next my blood ran lukewarm with a non-title match of Xavier in his first match after winning the ring of honor championship scored to the ring by simply luscious in his non-title match taking on Jay Briscoe and Jay Briscoe wins here in 13 minutes, 35 seconds via pinfall after he hits the J driller. So, this is the Xavier as Ring of Honor champ era, and I promised I'd give it a fair review, match by match, but I'll say match one in, this is the same as the Xavier before Ring of Honor champ era, which was bland, completely mediocre match. This is just... And it's a little more disappointing, I would say, because unlike a lot of Xavier's early Ring of Honor matches, this actually did get a good length of time. Jay Briscoe is still a green guy who needs to develop, but he can, as we saw with Mark Briscoe, and even a little bit with Amazing Red, he can do fun stuff already at this young an age. And this is just your standard Xavier match. He feels like he's kind of the guy leading Jay through it. It's just very mediocre and bland. I think it says something where Gabe, during commentary, when he really starts praising Xavier, the first thing, two things he mentions are his body and that he's a personal trainer. I think, you know, he goes on to praise other things of Xavier, but I think that's kind of telling that those are the two things that come to mind at first when you praise Xavier is, well, he looks great. He's in great shape. Um, not much to this match. Jay didn't even look that good. Jay normally pulls out one big, cool, innovative new move, of a, a, a show he didn't hear. He also had a really badly missed um, baseball slide, and it sucks for him because his very next move was going to the top and jumping to the outside and Xavier walking away, which was a planned spot. But the fact that he had just clearly whiffed on a baseball slide made those two moves in combination make him look just, I thought man look kind of like a doofus. And... I guess the only other thing I thought was notable about this match was I thought the crowd was pretty meh into this. You could hear a lot of conversations, like a lot of that murmuring during the match of people not turning on the match, but not being fully into, into watching it. But then when Jay right at the end hits the Jay jailer and gets the win, the crowd like gets surprisingly like up for it they they a lot of people are standing on their feet and clapping and cheering even though it's a non-title match to the point where i was almost wondering if some fans forgot it was a non-title match because if the crowd was at like a five in reaction for this match they're like at a nine for that finish they got really into jay winning yeah
1: well I also just really like jay i think by this point um he was a sentimental favorite in the area because he was so young and clearly improving pretty rapidly um I didn't dislike the match as much as you. I mean, I didn't think it was particularly good. But I do think Xavier looked a little bit better than he did as just the bland (laughs) baby face. Like, I think there was just a little more to him. Um, But I did think a lot of the stuff he did, like, still just didn't look great. Like, it just didn't look like a polished wrestler. His punches are really bad. Like, he has among the worst punches in ROH. Um, He has a good clothesline. Um but uh, he does a closeout on Jay though, when he does the one-foot cover. You know, I thought that wasn't bad. Um, the the belly, He did a belly-to-belly that I thought was all right. But, like, just his basic strikes and stuff. Like, he's sort of the guy who's sort of the kind of guy where I'm just like, you just shouldn't ever throw punches. You just can't do it. Like, And maybe his forearms are even worse, but his chops are okay, so maybe you should just stick to those. I don't know if, if you noticed the same thing about his strikes, but, like, they're really bad. And then... Um, You know, he does this, like, weird, like, inverted DDT off the top rope, which I thought looked so bad. Like, this was supposed to be, like, the champion of ROH, and I just thought, like, that was, like, very, like, low-level indie stuff. I don't know, do you remember that move at all?
0: Yeah, I remember it seemed kind of convoluted, and it seems like most of Xavier's stuff is fairly basic, but when he occasionally does try and do something complicated like that... More often than not, I go, like, that just wasn't worth the effort, like, how convoluted it was. And that was definitely one of those moves where it was just, like, it didn't look that great for how different it was. Yeah, he has
1: a couple moves that I think are cool. He didn't really do a lot of them in this match. He did the, like, torture rack into the reverse Samoan drop. I think that's cool.
0: Yeah, that was nice.
1: Yeah, I think Kiss Your Ex Goodbye, which he didn't do in this match, is a really cool move. Um, That sort of, like, weird, like, spinning into almost, like, a Piledriver bomb thing that he does. Um, I think is a cool move um, um, his, his crazy thing where he does the, uh, the dive from the top rope springing his legs onto the top rope and then doing a moonsault to the outside I think that's a really cool move um, so yes you know, he does some cool stuff but his basics are not that good and you know at one point he hits a big move then he goes like as the match is like going down the stretch he decides to lock in a chin lock but I will say that um, the chin lock did kind of work in the sense that the crowd started like clapping and stuff, whereas they really hadn't been reacting at all at that point. But then they do a whole slugfest in the middle, which I thought looked really bad considering the match that it followed, or like the you know match that it followed. Yeah. And, you know, like you don't want to do a slugfest after Joe and Loki. <laughs> they just, <laughs> it's just you're like that. Just kind of shows like you're not really paying attention. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean uh, Joe. Uh, Xavier did not kick out of the J-driller. J driller. Jade won with it, um, and I guess it sets up a rematch. Uh, we'll see if it's any better.
0: And it, this is another match where um, Xavier is. I know it's a Don title match, and it probably in some way shouldn't be higher, but it's it's kind of the worst possible positioning because it's what is this? Um, I think fourth from the top, maybe.
1: Yeah. And For Xavier's the, first match as champion. Yeah.
0: And not only is it fourth from the top, it's following the clear best match on the show. Unless, so,
1: it, yeah, because the, the, the... Other, numbers, other I guess other than... Yeah, it doesn't yeah. count. It doesn't count.
0: So, and to me, it's almost like, if you were asking me where to put this match, I mean, it's it's slightly improved because Nana did have the buffer, but that match was so sh- short and nothing, so short and nothing. That, it, to me, it's almost like you couldn't have picked the worst place to put, put this match. And... Mm-hmm.
1: I agree. Wouldn't better as uh, like the opener or something?
0: Yeah, if you're gonna go that far, but you could even have had Xavier come out and say, you know, I want to get this over with so I can go home or something. You know, you don't deserve to see me later. But no, they they put it in this weird. They put it the match in the position an Xavier match would have been put at on any show so far.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So after the match, Joe and um, Christopher Daniels run in to beat Jay down. Xavier hits, finally hits his 450 on them. now. They're, they're, they both kind of hold um, Jay for it, but I think they kind of drop him right before the end to keep it safe. Then low-key and Doug Williams run in and chase them off. And it was just weird for me watching this, seeing all these guys in and around the ring and going, every single one of these guys would be a better champion than Xavier right now, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to put a guy as champion, you want to make it seem like he's like the first or second top guy in the company, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and like the fact that like, this, he's such an early champion, and they're clearly still making him a mid-carder, is not really a good sign. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I will. I, I want to mention this. Like, and I mentioned this before, but it's amazing how in these like beginning ROH shows they really like made every single match have an angle. Like either yeah. either an angle surrounding it or an angle after it. it like they just like. It's a pure wrestling promotion, and they just never, almost never just have, like, a match.
0: Everything there, even even stuff like the like the Nana thing has the slugger thing at the end, yep. and even the Nana thing at least, like, fits a theme where he's continually squashing these lackeys. You know, er- everything has a reason to be there, and that's something I miss in modern indie wrestling and something, quite frankly, even Dave himself was better at in these days than he is now with Evolve.
1: Although I think to the it's almost in these shows it's almost to the point with overkill, like you can have less of this and maybe like one match where it's just two guys wrestling because sometimes that's cool too.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a guy who's just starting to book, trying almost too hard, you know.
1: Yeah, there, I'm just like there are elements of Russo in this, not the worst elements of it, but there are elements of Russo in this. I guess it's probably more of a Heyman thing, but I I, I feel some Russo in there,
0: like. I remember in a Christopher Daniels shoot interview, he said one of the things that impressed him about Gabe was when he first came into Ring of Honor, Gabe, unlike most promoters, like had plans for the first few. He, he knew where things were going to go for a bunch of shows. He had plans. Right. And a lot of promoters are only thinking about that next show. But I feel like you can imagine Gabe probably just sitting with his famous notebook. like scripting everything out almost too much you know being so excited to start doing this like okay this guy can do this and then this segment will happen and this run-in will happen afterwards and this promo like like you said not everything needs that kind of touch to it necessarily right but i still appreciate the effort yeah me too and next up is the philadelphia street fight which is no different than a boston street fight except maybe it's a little bit better because I actually did enjoy this a fair bit. This was the carnage crew of DeVito and Loke defeating the hit squad of Mafia and Monster Mac in only 6 minutes, 50 seconds, when DeVito pinned Mafia after they did a pile driver off the stage in the back of the rec center through a table. Um, Matt, how, what did you think about this, especially compared to the Boston match these two teams had?
1: Well, they were... I thought they were... F- Fairly equal. I I, I I remember I liked that match more than you did. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought this was fine. You know, I think what was good about this was you know they didn't do a lot of convoluted setting up. You know, just a lot of like crowd brawling. You know, and like the whole big theme of the match was everyone got thrown into lots of chairs over and over and over again, just big rows of chairs. Um, but um, but what was good about it is it didn't overstay its welcome. Like they didn't do too much, but they also didn't do it for too long. So yeah. just like it felt like a short, intense brawl, and then um, it ended with uh, this. So there's this platform at the in, like the, by the wall in the Murphy Rex Center, like almost like a stage, but a little bit narrow to be called the stage, I guess. But it's like a platform, and um, Mafia was gonna go to power bomb uh, one of the Carnage Crew off of the platform on through a table, but the Carnage Crew blocked it, and um, and uh, Devito basically pile drove um mafia off the stage through a table for the pin and mafia basically they sold it like mafia had had a serious injury and they Mm -hmm. they mentioned like oh they took out boogaloo the month before so maybe they took out mafia too you know everyone came out to check on mafia you know it was a big pretty good sell job um so overall i thought it was just it was good it was concise it was to the point in Overstate's welcome you know they, they they had the chair stuff they had the hubcap stuff um yeah, there's not a lot there's not a lot of like spots I would say to really point out in the match because it was mostly just a lot of like brawling. But it didn't go on and on and on, and that's what I liked about it.
0: I as you mentioned before, I disliked their Honor Invades Boston street fight quite a bit more than you did. I thought this was a significant improvement over that. I thought it was just shorter, more concise. I thought it moved at a better clip. I never got bored at this. And I did think there was actually a couple cool agility-based spots in this where Mafia does, they put, I think, DeVito on a guardrail propped up against, or they put a guardrail on DeVito as he's against the uh, turnbuckles, and um, DeVito does a, I mean, Mafia does a big like rolling splash into him. And then later he does the big biggest fat man topey or suicide dive I've seen in quite a while where... He hits a bunch of guys, and you can just feel the weight of them all kind of falling over slowly into the uh, guardrail. And in general, I just thought this moved at a good clip. If if you're a chair lover, this is a chair lover's dream because there's hard, unprotected chair shots to the head. There's guys throwing chairs at each other. There's guys getting tossed into rows of chairs. If you like chairs, this is your match.
1: It's like one of those famous chairs matches WWE has in December. <laughs> you know, they had all those classic chairs matches that they have every year.
0: All it's missing is like the big, like Big Show novelty size chair. Like if it had that, it would be like the ultimate chair match. This would have been. Um,
1: One funny thing I thought that platform that uh, that uh, Mafia was pile driven off of. um, There's like a door, like like right that opens up onto that platform. And I can't imagine that in all the years the Murphy Rec Center has existed, no one's been like a- absentmindedly opened that door and just fell off the platform. <laughs> door, like I was really, I was really distracted by this. It's like a door. It's like the platform is pretty narrow, so it's like if you're not paying attention, you could take like maybe two steps and just plummet to the floor.
0: Anyone watching this, it's it's real. As Matt pointed out before, it's really weird. Like look at this really weirdly sized and structured stage. I mean, I always thought it was the Murphy Rec Center. As just a sports complex, so it's weird to even see this. I guess maybe the room to have like a performance of a concert or something.
1: I've seen but, that before, like uh, like gymnasiums that have a little stage in the back, like a stage area, like it's elevated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not. It's not so abnormal to just to have something like that. It
0: it, it just.
1: But, I guess but, it's but, but because it's, also, but they're usually not that narrow. That's the thing.
0: And it's also just. I guess it's. A, I don't know if we've ever really gone that far back in the Murphy Rec Center so far in the. History of Ring of Honor. This is the first time a match really spends some time that far in the like right at the edge of one of that back half of the arena. So just a different side of it. And I'll point out here to end our talk about this match. Here's my one of my things that Gabe does that's really bugs me. You just went into one of yours. Um Gabe like goes really hard during the commentary of this match talking about. This is how Ring of Honor ends feuds, and you know not every company ends feuds like this. And and you know this is going to be just big hard brawls. You know this is how Ring of Honor ends feuds, and we're going to end another feud in a couple shows. We're going to have a street fight between you know the Carnage Crew and Abdullah the Butcher and Homicide to end that Homicide Carnage Crew feud. And something that Gabe does a lot, and even his promotions like Evolve does it to this day is they can be really inorganic about feuds. Like, I've heard on Evolve sh- shows and stuff, when a guy wins a match, instantly the announcer says, so-and-so won the feud. Like, Yep, he's always done that, yeah. Don't, don't, like, he talks about feuds the way you would talk about them if you were booking a total extreme warfare fantasy wrestling game, where, like, this match is ending the feud. This guy won the feud. You know, this is how we end feuds, where feuds, to me, should always feel a bit more organic than that. Like, how, like it, it reminds you that this is all booked. Like, this match will end the historic grudge. Occasionally you can book a match and talk about it like that, but Gabe does it so often. And just let the matches speak for themselves. You don't have to talk about how, isn't this a great end to a feud? Well,
1: I think it's, it, very, it's very similar to a lot of these... Um stipulations that, like, that are in part of these matches, which we'll get to, of just, like, things like, organically, nobody would care about some of these things, like, that they're, that they're fighting over. And it's the same thing, it's like, they're fighting over to win the feud, what does that even mean?
0: And, and maybe it goes back to, I think, one of the biggest points we're learning from just talking about the show is, Gabe's biggest flaw is he just doesn't have subtlety or finesse at all, and this is another thing where I think a different commentator could get across the kind of points he wanted to make without just being so kind of literal about it Mm -hmm. and he and he just can't he doesn't have that in him and so yeah i thought this was good and if you like that kind of hardcore stuff i think you'll enjoy this next we get a backstage segment where christian york and alexis laurie are checking on joey matthews he's passed out probably on the goofballs on the drugs elax is watching and laughing from a bathroom and we see that he's also in the bathroom with izzy and dixie so this is starting our big Joey Matthews gets addicted to drugs and is part of special K story which
1: And then CM is, Punk buys him a house.
0: <laughs> it's a little weird in hindsight knowing that he would have like legit tr- pro- drug problems. Yeah. to see like this be uh I don't know when he developed those problems but it's a little weird in hindsight watching this. I don't know if he had a rep already that they were playing off of, or is well, it was just a coincidence?
1: I, yeah, I thought the story was that he really developed it badly after that. He got his face smashed in that ladder
0: match. I mean, that certainly would introduce you to pain pills, I imagine. He yeah. was probably getting a hefty prescription after his face exploded. So, but, yeah, either a weird coincidence or just a weird thing, but that will develop more. It's just a really short segment. And next we get our, I believe this is the semi-main event, this is the three-way elimination match for the showstopper, the rights to the showstopper name. So another stupid, meaningless gimmick.
1: Right, this is another, like, it's like it's just, like, who cares? Like, who could yeah. possibly care?
0: Michael Shane, scored to the ring by Biohazard, takes on Paul London and Spanky. Michael Shane wins the match. He gets both eliminations. He eliminates Paul London in 944, just off of stealing the pin when Spanky hits slice spread number two on London. And then Michael Shane will then eliminate Spanky at 19.45 via pinfall after he hits the pitcher-perfect elbow. I guess before I talk about this match, we should note that this is Brian Kendrick or Spanky's very last match of his first run in Ring of Honor. The Observer at the time was writing this week, the week before the show, I think, or maybe of the show. He said, Brian Kendrick, Spanky, will be getting a tryout in either Las Vegas or Phoenix with the WWE on October 7th or 8th, so in other words, two to three days after the show, as he's being brought in for both of those shows. Gabe Sapolsky from Ring of Honor actually mentioned to us that some of the wrestlers in WWE had started getting the tapes of Ring of Honor, and that that would lead to the office getting them, I guess, them being the wrestlers, and that there would probably be people offered spots. And then, a little bit later, Dave writes, We'd accepted an all an all but son- No, he said, um, Kendrick had accepted and all but signed a deal with Zero One that we wrote about last week, but hadn't put pen to paper when WWE contacted him. It's a very interesting story because he was in their developmental program for years, and they never showed strong interest in him. That's when they didn't push smaller guys. Then they cut him and missed a lot of controversy at the time. Then he worked on HWA, which was one of WWE's developmental companies, on his own dime, and they wouldn't even sign him to a new developmental deal. Now, and timing in life is interesting, or uh, is everything, they're interested in him, and it would have to most likely be up for a main roster slot, because I can't see him turning down a three-year deal in Japan for a $25,000 a year job in OVW. So, yeah, this was was it for Brian Kendrick. He would go back to WWE, and Spanky was kind of like the modern-day... Marty Jannetty where he just jumped in and out of WWE his whole career. He would go in, go out, go in, go out. Never really staying. And looking back at Spanky's first ROH run, it's weird. He he, he didn't have as big a presence as he had a, both a bigger presence and a smaller presence than I remembered. I forgot how hard Gabe was pushing him, how he never lost a match till crowning a champion. I, I forgot how many little segments he got and how strong a push he got, and I forgot how he was good, but not as great, you know, as I remembered.
1: Yeah, in the ring, he was not that impressive.
0: It, it, it's, a, it's a run that's maybe a little bit more fondly remembered than it should be, and this so this is it for him. He was supposed to work All-Star Extravaganza, but... WWE did not want him working that show and getting hurt, so they didn't let him work it, so this is it for him, and this is not, this is a bad way for him to go out, because I thought this match was really disappointing, I think you can cut this match basically into two almost even halves in time, you get the three-way, and then you get a singles match of Shane and Spanky, both about 10 minutes, and this was... The three-way, I thought, was really not good at all. I thought it was really sloppy. I thought it was a match, clearly, from three guys that either didn't have experience doing three-ways or didn't want to do a three-way or both. They only had a few three-way spots, and the spots they did have weren't very good. I thought that a lot of the three-way portion of the match was of the typical variety where one guy sells for a long time, so two guys can just have the singles match they really want to have, and then they switch guys, The interesting thing to me was Paul London nearly killed himself twice in this match on doing his drop salt, where he does the drop kick into the the moonsault landing. And I've seen Paul London on these last few shows do so many crazy things, land them perfectly, and walk away from them. And so it was weird to see him do a move he does almost every match twice and nearly land on his head from under rotating both times, both times the ref had to check on him because that's how badly he landed. He was just having, it felt like he was having a real off night between this, how he looked in the match in general and how far he jumped to the side off the ladder. Just, Not a great night for him. In fact, on the second drop salt, you can hear a few isolated boos of Paul London. And it's crazy to think how he went from being probably the most over guy on Unscripted to kind of fucking up a signature move and and getting a few scattered boos one show later. Not a great three-way. And then the singles match, I thought, between Spanky and Shane was also disappointing. I thought they had that brawl a few shows ago that you and I both thought was surprisingly better than we thought it probably would have been going in. This was just a very bland. I don't think, I think this is a match that didn't get out of second gear really. And Shane wins clean and he gets the showstopper name. And before I give it to you, I'll just note that at the end of the match, he gets on the mic and says he won the showstopper name so that he could retire it. So no one could use his cousin's nickname, which just makes the whole thing feel even more pointless and it's also kind of a baby face move like that's kind of a noble thing which is I don't want to live in my cousin's shadow I don't want to steal this name I don't want anyone to steal that name but he's a heel and he's doing and he's giving this speech and also it's hard to talk about not living in someone's shadow when you just finished a match with a super kick and a top rope elbow drop and you're Shawn Michaels cousin but (laughs) the whole thing was just weird to me. I mean, just a, a a night of weird gimmick matches and of weird kind of ends to feuds. And Matt, what did you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I actually probably liked the match even less than you. I thought it was like kind of just bad. Um maybe it wouldn't have been bad if it was half as long, like cause it's not like the execution was terrible, but the pacing was so clunky and I don't know, it just was so boring. And, like, the less the last thing I'd expect from these guys is boring. And part of it was the crowd was just super tired and not reacting, and that always makes a match seem a little more boring. Um, but, I, I don't know, I, you know, London, like you said, had an off night. They kept doing the taking um, out the guardrail spot, which I was already very sick of by this point in the night. Um, Spanky had pretty much, by this match, removed all of his character from the earlier shows? Like, there were no hijinks, no silliness. Did he do anything that really showed his, his
0: personality? He, c- he came out with the big novelty oversized sunglasses, and that's really all, like, other than that entrance. And it's I guess it's worth noting here, he had a, kind of a shorter haircut, which Gabe noted on commentary was Zero One requested that he cut his hair shorter to look more like Leonardo DiCaprio. And in fact, he was billed in Zero One as Leonardo Spanky. But really, that's... Yeah, other than that, other than the weird, the typical kind of, um, Salvation Army thrift store gear he wore to the ring, all the character of Spanky is gone at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, not that's necessarily bad, because he was, I think they were overdoing it with that silly stuff in the earlier shows, but maybe there's there could be a better balance than All or Nothing, um. I liked the, uh, the way they got rid of London um, in the sense of like it would put Shane over well in the sense that Spanky hit the sliced bread and Shane super kicked Spanky and he kind of stole the pin on London. Uh, that was good. The crowd really didn't like London leaving because I still think he was the guy they most cared about. It is interesting just how hard they were pushing Michael Shane though at this point. And I'm very very curious to see like when that kind of stops. Because at a certain point before he leaves, they lose faith in him because he was clearly getting like a top guy push here. Like, at least building up to that point. And along and, the way, he that stops completely.
0: And clearly, even on this show, we're seeing kind of the form starting, the seeds being planted for Steve Carino getting his own stable. And when you watch this, like, clearly Michael Shane's kind of his first in command after Carino. Like, the, they're, they're creating a nice little spot for him. And like you said, they're, it's not going to be too long before they lose faith in him.
1: Yeah, and it's, um, I'm very curious to see that moment because I don't remember exactly. Um, it is funny in the, in the closing promo he debuts his catchphrase, which is "So to all I say, eat me," <laughs> which is pretty similar to Eric Bischoff's "Bite me" catchphrase that came out shortly. I'm pretty sure before "Suck it." So it's 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 a continuum. There's from "Bite me" to "Suck it" to "Eat me." <laughs>
0: I agree, I thought this was below average, and it's kind of, I I don't know how much I would blame Spanky for this, but it's funny that Spanky has been in two really disappointing matches in a short Ring of Honor run, this and the American Dragon match, in the Heartbreak gauntlet, I thought were both really not good, like below average, and... He's part of both of them. I mean, maybe he just had two nights where things didn't go right. I mean, I know with the American Dragon one, his clothes basically exploded. But, yeah, just in a way it sums up Spanky's run, which is potential and it doesn't get fully realized here.
1: He was he he was very good in the four-way. I will say that.
0: Yeah, he was very good in that. And the first couple shows, he I think we mentioned he was over and above pretty much everyone on the undercard in terms of polish. It's yes. just... He never really went further than that. Right. And after the match, Michael Shane gets on the mic, does the thing about the showstopper gimmick. Eat me. Eat me. This was a mess. And we finally get the final match and our final big stipulation match. This is Doug Williams taking on Christopher Daniels, escorted to the ring once again by Simply Luscious. The stipulations for this, originally this match was supposed to be Doug Williams versus Dick Togo, and then the winner that night would get to face Christopher Daniels in this step match, but Dick Togo got hurt, and is in fact is on crutches later, we'll see at the end of this match. So, instead they went just straight to Doug Williams, Christopher Daniels, with the stipulation being, if Doug Williams won, Christopher Daniels would have to shake hands, I forget if it was in Ring of Honor in general, or just against just tonight with Doug Williams, but if Doug Williams lost... He would not be allowed to shake hands in Ring of Honor after that moment, and Christopher Daniels wins here in 12 minutes, 25 seconds, with a feet on the ropes cheating pin. I think I'll give it to you, but the one thing I'll mention from this match before I give it to you is, he Christopher Daniels clearly suffers a legit rib injury halfway through the match. He says he um, his rib popped during the match, and in fact, he had to go to the hospital after this match, so... I guess good, no matter what you think about this match, good on him, I guess, for gritting his teeth and going through it. You know, you can see him clutching his rib throughout the match at about the halfway point. But, Matt, what did you think of the match just as an uh, entertaining piece of wrestling?
1: It uh, it started off well. Uh, I, I, I always like Doug Williams' opening mat work. I think he's just, I could watch that for hours. Like, I think he's awesome at that. Um, and, you know, it wasn't that long, so it didn't really have time to get, like, great but it also didn't necessarily drag either but i i didn't think it was it was that good you know the crowd was still tired maybe they were a little bit up from the previous match um but still you know it's just a a long show and you feel like at the end of something like that if you're gonna really be excited for a finish um for for closing match it has to be a really good one and this one had the lame stipulation again which was the handshake stipulation where if um if daniels won he wouldn't be able to shake hands or he would have to shake hands, and if Williams won, he wouldn't be able to shake hands. It's just like, what does that even mean? Like, if it was, like the handshaking thing, I get what they're trying to do with it, but it doesn't feel like, they're, like that's really stakes that are being introduced, if you know what I mean. Um, like, what, would it really, like, they, they tried to explain why that would matter to Doug Williams, like, because he would be dishonored in every match, and nobody would... Because he wouldn't be able to shake hands and follow the code of honor. It's like, well, everybody would know that he's not allowed to, right? So nobody would really be mad at him about it. And Daniels, let's say he let's say he uh, lost the match, what would stop him from just continuing to not shake hands? Because he's already supposed to, and he's not doing it. You know what I mean?
0: Chris Daniels, in one of his shoot interviews, had some kind of interesting things to say about this. He said that He felt like the handshake gimmick did not go the way he wanted. He said one of the things he thought was because Ring of Honor wasn't a weekly TV show, it was hard to kind of enforce the storyline. And he said he had one idea, which actually sounds kind of neat that Gabe didn't want to do, which was for like Doug Williams' next match or one of his next matches, have Doug Williams come out wrestle win a match and then he goes to shake the guy's hand and does cuz he's forgetting the gimmick and then Daniels comes out and reminds everybody and then that gets Williams DQ'd and Daniels can like laugh at him and just drive this guy crazy and um Gabe I guess didn't want that kind of finish cuz he thought that would be cheating the fans or something uh-huh. but that that's something that Daniels thought like those kind of things could uh be used to further the gimmick I don't know how successful they they would be but I know, like Daniels mentions, this gimmick, they, they have a rematch early in 2003, and they just quietly kind of undo the gimmick. It, it just, it did not succeed at all.
1: Yeah, I, I think at the beginning, the handshake thing kind of works for Daniels to get that early boo, but they leaned way too hard into it. With like it becoming the whole mission statement of the prophecy that they're not going to shake hands. I mentioned this last, last time, like just like they're the prophecy. It's this very like dark thing. And their whole thing is a, we don't want to shake hands. It's stupid, (laughs) right? Like it's just, um, it's, they just, they just go with it for too long. I think, um, that said the match is all right. Um, they, the whole, they do a whole thing where, where, uh, Daniel's keeps blocking the, uh, the chaos theory, which I thought was kind of cool. He blocks it at least three times, right? One time he blocks it and he hits a stone cold stunner, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, at one point, uh, Daniels Duh gets hit by an inverted atomic drop, and Jeff Gorman calls it. Do you remember what he called this? Did you notice this?
0: No, no, I did not. What did he call it? A Manhattan drop? I've heard that before, but not often. I forget where even – I've, I've definitely heard it called that before, but I don't know where. In what? where it's being called that. But I've heard it called that before. Yeah, let's I'm a Manhattan drop.
1: Interesting. Well, so then then uh, Daniels blocks the Chaos Theory again, but Williams hits a spinning DDT, which was good. Um, he hits, uh, Williams hits the three-knee uh, combo and the top rope knee for a knee fall, near fall, which looks good. Fisherman Buster for two. Then he blocks another Chaos Theory and hits an STO in the BME the, for two. And then um, Williams goes for a few uh, quick cradles. Uh, finally hits the Chaos Theory, but Daniels, like, falls into the ropes. And then uh, Daniels takes down uh, Doug and uh, he pins him with the uh, his feet on the rope. So it's sort of like a cheap ending. So it's not the most satisfying match. I would say it's decent, I guess, but kind of lousy when you consider it's the main event after such a long show. Um, what I thought was interesting is the, the post-match, uh, you know, when Daniels is celebrating, you know, Williams, like the, the announcers make a big deal. Like, oh no, Williams can't shake hands ever again in ROH. And Williams doesn't really even seem to care that much. Like, he's not like, super upset. He's just kind of standing there. And Dick Togo runs in with a crutch. He was supposed to, like, kind of wrestle Williams to see who would take on Daniels. Yeah. But he was hurt. Um, so he runs in with a crutch and hits Daniels with the crutch. And I'm trying to, like, remember in my head, like, what did Daniels do to him that was so bad that he was going to get hit with a crutch? And all it was was that they kind of did a sneaky heel win. The previous yeah. month, where um, Donovan Morgan held Hidaka's leg when Daniels pinned him, which made me wonder why is Hidaka not mad? Does he just not care as much about <coughs> tag team titles as Togo does? It's just weird. But uh, Jay Briscoe does hit a J driller on Daniels after this. Um, I don't know. I thought it was, you know, it was fine, um, but I think I guess what I was feeling was it was fine, but Fine's not quite good enough at that moment.
0: I agree with from these two guys, and in the main event of the. You know, the self-proclaimed biggest ring of honor show yet in history. It Just a, a crappy stip and an, a mediocre match. It might have been overall a little bit above average just because they're so polished. I did agree with you. Like I re- the mat work at the start, you know, it just looks so good. These guys are very good at that stuff. I, I really, kn- going in since I knew about Daniel's rib injury, I really focused on, did the match change because of that rib injury? I haven't heard Daniels ever say that it did. He liked the match. Um, it's worth noting, he doesn't seem to change anything he would do. He, he grabs at his ribs, but he even does the best moonsault ever, like you said, where he would land right on his ribs. So it doesn't seem like he the, the fact that one of his ribs kind of popped during the match limited what he did. It just was a disappointing, perfectly middle-of-the-road match, and... Another straight show where the main event was kind of a letdown after some of the stuff we've seen before. And it, it, the second straight show where it had that, this was a very heel-heavy victory show. And this was the second straight show that had that kind of very, very um, fake, forced feeling. We have to have some faces run in to send the crowd home happy feel you know just having jay briscoe and dick togo with a crutch of all people running in yeah. to, to give you that faces stand tall moment just like how the last show had danielson and um mike moss overreacting way too much and breaking a trophy it just felt like gabe realized well if the feels win we have to have the faces do something to give you that typical face moment but yeah, not a bad match. Just disappointing match. Disappointing way to end the show. Crowd was tired. I don't think if they were even up for it, it would have been that much better. Yeah. And then we get the back. We go backstage to the staircase where Tony Mamaluke is dressed in a ratty old, wholly torn up misfits shirt, carrying his luggage up some stairs. When Maritano kind of heartwarmingly is like, "Hey, you know, you're not going to say goodbye," and they have like sure, kind of touching hug and then Maritato does as i said earlier in the show for the millionth friggin time he cuts this promo about how you don't need the fbi gimmick and you know blah 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 and this time mama looks just like okay yeah you're right yeah
1: he got, he got it, sentimental because uh uh maritato was leaving i guess
0: yeah and this is this is the end for Maritato. so spanky's gone maritato has gone and Maritana would show up on WWE very soon as Nunzio. So he did he was in he was a liar. He did not give him the rights to the FBI gimmick.
1: He did not. He and took it with him, stole it.
0: There should be, like, a secret lost segment that they film now with an older Meritado where they act like it was filmed right after that segment. And it's just like, ha, ha, ha. And he's holding, like, a contract with the rights to the FBI gimmick and his name's still on it. he's like, that sucker. Yeah. And then, he, then he's like, hello, Vince McMahon. Yes, I would like $50,000 to work for you. <laughs> and then, but, um, and then we get one more segment to close the show, which is christer it, it, this show came in at where every show does around 257 258 two hours 58 minutes but they cut to this daniels promo in mid-sentence like they're rushing for time and he's flanked by xavier samoa joe and simply luscious joe is um making goofy faces in the background kind of not taking them seriously he just gives a standard promo carino comes walks in the room Daniels and Luscious want to know what's up with Carino pallying around with Michael Shane, especially since Michael Shane super kicked Simply Luscious a few shows ago. Carino does the old thing where he says, you know, Shane and him is business, Luscious and him is personal. He doesn't care about the prophecy, which offends Daniels a bit, but he's willing to let it go. Michael Shane walks in, Xavier gets in his face, and they tease an Xavier Michael Shane t- singles match, which thankfully never happens, I don't think. Um, Carino wants Simply Luscious to leave with him, but Daniel says she still has work they have to do with the prophecy. So then Carino asks Samoa Joe if he wants to go to Norma Jeans with him. Joe is totally down to go to Norma Jeans. That bugs Daniels too, but Joe lets uh, Daniels know that he's paid by Daniels to wrestle, not to be his boyfriend, because, quote, that costs extra. So Joe is available for that, but just at a higher price. He leaves with, um... Carino, and that's, that's how we end the show. That, that's the sauciest end to a Ring of Honor show yet.
1: Yeah, well, probably except for the, uh, the whole thing where the, at the end of Night of Appreciation where everyone's like mad at Spanky and then he's like, uh, oh, Daniel's is like, oh, this place would make my hair grow, go gray if I had it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was a good one too.
1: Yeah, but th- this was good. I, li- I actually liked that segment. I, I thought it got, got a lot of things done. It planted the seeds for Carino's group and the, the tension with Daniel's. It got Joe over. I thought Joe's personality was very appealing, um, so I liked it. Um, but as far as the show overall, um, I don't know. I thought it was one of the more mediocre shows that they did. It was just too much stuff, a lot of meaningless stipulations, a lot of disappointing matches, a lot of nothing matches. Um, uh, no, and you know, there was one great match, but not enough to overcome how much other bland stuff there was so i don't know i thought it just i i I thought might have been actually top to bottom their weakest
0: show overall
1: i i'm i'm not sure there were a couple others that were close it's not a clear winner than that one but it might have been
0: it's tough i would put near the bottom night of appreciation i don't think had a match nearly as good as joe um key because i would say that's better than the first key uh, AJ Styles match. But yeah, there's just something off-putting about this show with all the weird stiff gimmick matches that never amounted to anything and weren't impressive to begin with. There's something there was a lot of it was a heel-heavy winning show, which isn't necessarily always a bad thing, but it just doesn't feel like what they build it as, which is, oh, this is the biggest Ring of Honor show of all time. It feels decidedly not big in a lot of ways. But and, and again, there's the huge caveat, which is it's another one-match show where that one match is legally free online right now. Yeah. And I, I I know I've been saying that on a lot of these shows recently, but it's just true. Like, Crowning a Champion and and this and Unscripted, where these are shows with one great match that you don't have to buy it, spend a cent to see. So I think soon we're going to get out of that era, hopefully, but a lot of these shows were one-match shows.
1: I have and to say... Um, if I, I, you know, I wasn't following ROH from show to show at this point yet. I don't know if you were you in two thousand. No,
0: not not yet. Sh- not on a show to show basis. No.
1: If I was, I think I'd be pretty down on the promotion at this point. Like you know, they have the good matches, but I think a lot of the shows are dull. The angles feel like kind of meaningless. Um, there's too much fluff, and even if you're talking about like just judge it by the standards of the time. You know the whole thing is it's supposed to be the pure wrestling, and as we've said, they don't really stick to that a lot. It's just as much sports entertainment as they have on the other, you know, on any other wrestling show. But also, this was happened to be the time, which is the fall of two thousand two, when the wrestling quality of like especially SmackDown was so consistently high that WWF was or WWE was filling that niche in the U.S. Um, to better than ROH was. You know, this was like fully in the SmackDown 6 era, Brock Lesnar was having great matches. Um, so ROH, you know, it wasn't really doing it better. So I, I think I would have been feeling like, all right, well, ROH is just a decent indie but and has some great matches sometimes. But I, I don't feel like it, felt like it feels like anything special at this point
0: we're getting to this weird middle period where they're getting even more, deeper and more into angles, but they're not, I mean, it was never, not uh, yeah, yeah, they, were, they weren't good and they were never, you know, they were never the best storytellers in wrestling history, but they would get more adept at it than they are right now. I mean, there yeah. there is no, we're seeing some seeds, but there's no Homicide Carino yet. There's no Punk Raven. There's no, there's, there's nothing, but they're trying to have something like that. And they're throwing twenty things at the wall, and they're just not doing any of them well. They're not sticking, you know. They're giving all these step matches. They're trying to have feuds. They're talking about how this is how we end feuds, you know. They're being conscious of those story, of uh, they're telling stories. They're just not great stories yet.
1: Well, do you, well, like, well, what do you think? Because I, I, I sort of like, you know, laid it out there. Do you think that the Ring of Honor of October two thousand two was a particularly good wrestling promotion? Even by the standards of two thousand two,
0: I think it was a better promotion by the standards of two thousand two than us looking back at twenty seventeen. But I think if you're if you're talking about a product from start to finish, it's it's not that it's not like you said it's not on the level of WWE. I don't think I think it's it's a real pick and choose promotion where you could make a great Ring of Honor comp tape. But it, there's a lot of these shows where I'd be hard pressed to recommend the whole show. I mean, I mean, I haven't been. You know, I yeah. do a podcast where I recommend the shows. You know, watch if someone... watch,
1: watch No Mercy two thousand two, which was the show that WWF had WWE had that month, and you know, that's the show. Like that was blowing off some of the, the Katie Vick stuff. But even despite that, watch the show from top to bottom and tell me that's not a much better wrestling show um, than this is, and with, and with with better angles too. Besides the Katie and, Vick thing, yeah.
0: And even WWE, a kind of a mediocre, plotting, kind of starting to be removed from their best storytelling days. I feel like still give you more satisfying angle moments than Ring of Honor is right now. In addition to good wrestling. Yeah. But again, I feel like if you if someone just told me to make a Ring of Honor comp tape on these eight first shows, I could put something amazing and mind blowing together. But it would just be cherry picking from all the shows. Right. I, I I couldn't just recommend one show. I mean there's a couple good shows, but even them not not, not great. You right, know? right.
1: Road to the title and Honor Invades Boston are the two yeah. best shows. And none neither of those are like, oh man, such amazing shows. They're they're just they're they happen to be more entertaining from top to bottom than the other ones.
0: Yeah, it's not like you're gonna be wowed from start to finish it's going to be like there's a few really good things and then there's a lot of stuff that isn't going to like make you want to gouge your eyes out there's not that show yet where every there's like eight out of ten things are just very good to great where you're just getting blown away they haven't hit that yet but it's coming it's coming It'll, it'll happen the show we review next, I don't know if it will quite hit that level, but it is a show that at the time was seen as the best show in Ring of Honor history up to that point. It's something I think I've been looking forward to, and I think you have too. Our next show, the ninth episode, we will review All-Star Extravaganza, the very first one in Ring of Honor history. Shinjiro Otani and Masato Tanaka will be coming in to take on Low-Key and Steve Carino. There will be a gauntlet match. CM Punk will make his in-ring debut. We'll get to see American Dragon, Brian Danielson, take on AJ Styles. So, I mean, that'd be a huge dream match today. It's happening in 2002. So, something to look forward to definitely starting with the next show. Oh, for sure. Should be a fun show. And as always, I am going to plug. If you want to contact us, there's a million ways to contact us through the years at gmail.com, spelled T-H-R-O-H, um, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, or at Mayor M-G-F on Twitter for Matt. We post, or I post, on the Pro Wrestling Only message board, at Voices of Wrestling message board, at the Figure Four Weekly message board for those who subscribe to there. And so yeah, we always love hearing from you. If you have any materials, like Laney did this episode We'll credit you, and we're more than happy to use and credit any materials you have unless um, you don't want us to use your name. Will you just let me know? And thank you again for listening. We tell a friend. We appreciate it. Matt, is there anything else you want to say except talk about water for half an hour? Well, um,
1: next next episode um, – well, two episodes from now, the one after All Star Extravaganza is going to be our, our water special where the entire thing is just about water. So stay tuned
0: for that. And
1: Um, we'll be recording
0: from swimming
1: pools. That's right. Two separate swimming pools, unfortunately. But one day we'll swim together.
0: Yes. We'll have a big convention in the water. That's right.
1: But until then, um, no, that's pretty much it. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, I always appreciate it. It really is uh, amazing that people listen to us talk. um, And uh, it it is not something that we forget.
0: No. Thank you so much, everybody. And see you next time.